everyone, and welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Medium Cool Pod. Go check us out on social media. That's Facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can also search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram, and we'll pop up. And at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also email us at MediumCoolPod at gmail.com. Please feel free to subscribe or, or follow us wherever you're listening to this. Uh, you can also leave a rating and a review. This is me whoring myself out to get better ratings. That's really all I'm doing. I'm not above this, okay? We're content creators and we need your help. So help us out. All right, anyways, all that to say, uh, hey, we're here, and today is a great episode. I'm super excited about this because not only am I having Matthew Sosi back, uh, well, not, I, I, yes, technically back. I keep forgetting we, we recorded this a little while ago, so I keep thinking I've already released it. But the point is, he's here to do a long-form Bergman marathon with me. I did the early Bergman stuff prior to this in, like, the short intros. And then uh, we're going to be doing long-form Bergman uh, for about seven episodes. Not back-to-back. We're going to do this week and next week. And then uh, next week will be uh, a vir- The Virgin Spring and Through a Glass Darkly. This week we're going to be looking at Smiles of a Summer Night, Bergman's first kind of knockout uh, success. And then Wild Strawberries, which is, uh, well, I'll just leave it to our conversation to describe that one to you. Uh, and then... Uh, you know, we'll take, you know, some weeks off and then I'll have him back and we'll do a couple more, but there's seven movies total. And, uh, we're going to be doing, as I've already said, Smiles of a Summer Night, Wild Strawberries, The Virgin Spring, Through a Glass Darkly. And then we're also going to do Cries and Whispers, Scenes, uh, Scenes of a Marriage and, uh, Fanny and Alexander. So, uh, and I haven't seen those last three actually ever. So I'm really excited to watch those and, you know, build a fresh opinion on them and have a good conversation with Matthew Sosi. But he's going to be here. But before that, I'm going to use this opening segment to to celebrate a comedy legend, okay? It is Mel it was Mel Brooks's birthday uh yesterday uh on uh June 28th. He turned 95 years old. Homie's still kicking. Uh, what a what what a great guy, and and I'm really excited to talk about his movie Young Frankenstein. It was always my favorite Mel Brooks movie, and I wanted to revisit it because I hadn't seen it in a long time. And uh, I'm excited to tell you guys how I felt about it, but also just kind of celebrate his movies and celebrate that birthday. So I'm gonna go ahead and jump into that. I'm gonna talk about Young Frankenstein right now. All right, we're here to celebrate the 95th birthday of Mel Brooks, the comedy legend. And uh, in, to do that, I went ahead and revisited a film I hadn't seen in many years, but I've seen before, and that's Young Frankenstein from 1974. Let me tell you this. I am surprised that this film is not readily available anywhere. I went to Amazon Prime. It says this selection is not available or whatever they have it on there but you can't watch it couldn't find it on netflix couldn't find it on hulu couldn't find it i even went to the criterion channel youtube all these places couldn't find it to even rent so i bought the damn thing which is great i'm happy to have it but it was directed by mel brooks written by mel brooks and gene wilder and starring gene wilder madeline khan Marty Feldman, the guy with the crazy eyes, fantastic as Igor, uh, Terry Gar, Peter Boyle, and Cloris Leachman. 
It was released on December 15th, 1974, with a budget of $2.78 million, and the box office, get this, $86.2 million this movie brought in. Crazy increase. This is a huge success, but not the kind of success that would be, you know, acknowledged by the Academy, uh, you know, to get like an, you know, an Oscar or something. It's never going to be anything like that, nor do I think it necessarily even really earns that. But the point, because 1974 was a crazy year, wasn't going to win anyways. But it's crazy how successful this was, and I'm glad that uh, Mel Brooks was able to go on and make a lot more movies because of this and Blazing Saddles and a bunch of classics he made at the time. But this is the fourth film by Mel Brooks, and it's a film about a young neurosurgeon who inherits the castle of his grandfather, the famous Dr. Victor von Frankenstein, and in the castle he finds a funny hunchback, a pretty lab assistant, and an elderly housekeeper. Young Frankenstein, or Frankenstein, uh, as <laughs> as the young Frankenstein calls it, um, believes that the work of his grandfather was delusional. But when he discovers the book where the mad doctor described his reanimation experiment, he suddenly has a change of heart. We follow the character's silly antics as the horror comedy unfolds to be a pure delight. Now, I had, as I said before, I had not seen the film in a long time, and honestly, I didn't remember whole chunks of it, and even certain actors that are in it, even though I thought I remembered everything. So I'm really, really glad that I revisited this film. Now, I want to start off by asking, how is this movie so good? <laughs> I mean, as Gary Arnold from the Washington Post criticized it, the film is a rambling collection of scene parodies and more or less constant stream of puns, double entendres, and other verbal rib pokes, uh, rib pokers and thigh slappers. He says this like it's a bad thing, and honestly, under different circumstances, it very well could be. But here, it works so well. And I think that's largely due in part to the dedication to parody via homage rather than making fun, the writing, and the performances. There is an elegance to the black and white cinematography here by uh, Gerald Hertzfeld, uh, who also worked with Sidney Lumet on Failsafe from 1964, too. But uh, Young Frankenstein shows a dedication to the original Universal monster movies of the 1930s and 40s, like Dracula, The Mummy, The Wolfman, and of course, Frankenstein. And Young Frankenstein is a faithful reproduction of that genre. And, and if you're a fan of the old Universal horror movies and you haven't seen this Mel Brooks classic, go out of your way to see it for sure. They, uh, you know, even get these incredible set pieces that are reminiscent of the classics, though the Universal pictures are you know, uncannily iconic, you know, just unequivocally, rather, I guess would be a better way to put it, unequivocally iconic, uh, you know, more so than here, Young Frankenstein hits all the visual cues, which made the film so fascinating for me to revisit. Now, fun fact, when Mel Brooks was preparing for this film, he discovered that Ken Strickfaden, uh, who'd made the elaborate electrical machinery for the lab sequences in the Universal Frankenstein films in the 30s, was still alive, this guy, and living in Los Angeles in, in, the, in the L.A. area. And Brooks visited Strickfaden uh, and found that he had stored all the equipment in his garage, which is crazy. So Brooks made a deal to rent the equipment and gave Strick Faden the screen credit he didn't receive in the original Frankenstein films. So in terms of authenticity, this is part of where that comes from. That said, there is an authenticity to the look, but with 70s Mel Brooks humor. 
But Mel Brooks's humor was not the only humor at play here. Gene Wilder came up with the idea for Young Frankenstein and proposed it to Brooks while shooting Blazing Saddles the same year. In an interview with the LA Times, Brooks said, I was in the middle of shooting the last few weeks of Blazing Saddles somewhere in the Antelope Valley, and Gene Wilder and I were having a cup of coffee, and he said, I have this idea... That could be another Frankenstein. And I said, oh, not another. We've had the son of, we've had the cousin of, we've had the brother-in-law. We don't need another Frankenstein. His idea was very simple. What if the grandson of Dr. Frankenstein wanted nothing to do with the family whatsoever? He was ashamed of those wackos. And I said, now that's funny. From there, they moved forward and relatively soon after released this masterpiece. Doing this sort of humor, however, is not an easy feat and is likely to, you know, turn off a lot of viewers. It seems so childish, amateurish, and so bad it's good at times. For example, Terry Gar's Inga says, Hello. Would you like to have a roll in the hay? It's fun. Roll, roll, roll in the hay. Now, Inga literally starts just rolling back and forth in a hay because they're in kind of like this hay wagon, you know, and she's literally just rolling back singing roll, roll, roll in the hay, just like you heard, and this is silly. It's honestly not funny, but Wilder and Brooks' writing is so consistent, the performances are so solid that somehow these moments land when they should absolutely uh, crash and die. There's no reason they should be this good. And that scene out of context probably is not funny at all if you haven't seen the film or haven't seen it in a long time. But there's just something, again, about the consistency. But there is an art to this level of comedy. Not just anyone can do it. And, you know, a lot of it is in the performances that it takes to execute this kind of comedy. Much like the Coen Brothers movies or, or something like Woody Allen films. You know, not just anyone can do the thing. But Gene Wilder is incredible. My God, can this guy do no wrong in the 70s? I mean, he has no fear, no decency, just pure conviction. He goes all out as Dr. Frederick Franken... Well, I almost said Frankenstein, uh, but Dr. Frederick Frankenstein. And he is gold. You know, and it's a rare thing in this era that Brooks doesn't appear in in a film in a notable role, you know, in a film he's made. But Brooks said in an interview, I wasn't allowed to be in it. There was a deal with Gene Wilder that we had, and he said, if you're not in it, I'll do it. You have a way of breaking the fourth wall, whether you want to or not, and I just want to keep it. I don't want too much to be, you know, a wink at the audience. I love the script. And he wrote the script with me, and that was the deal. So I wasn't in it, and he did it. And if you ask me, your humble host, uh, I'd say it was a great choice on Brooks and Wilder's you know, part to not have Brooks in it. I love Mel Brooks, and I love even whenever he is a main character. I love so many of his movies, and I think he's outstanding. But for this one, Wilder really was the show, and I'm so glad that he was given the opportunity to be. That said, uh, it is a great performance by Peter Boyle playing the monster, the creature, the creation of Frankenstein. Uh, the, the Hands down, the best scene, I would say, is the performance of putting on the Ritz. It is so great and easily the most laugh-out-loud moment for me. Uh, you know, here's this dead, mad scientist creation in Frankenstein's monster, and he's wearing a tuxedo, a top hat, and sporting a cane. And then he does this. 
If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? Different types who wear a day coat, pants with stripes, or cutaway coat, perfect fits. Peter Boyle's great, of course, but, you know, an actor that I completely forgot was in the movie altogether is Gene Hackman, and he has a small side role in the film, which I completely forgot about, and, and you know, uh, apparently he learned about the film through his frequent tennis partner, a Gene Wilder, and requested a role because he wanted to try comedy. He'd never done comedy before. He'd done The French Connection prior to this. He was in Bonnie and Clyde. You know, he'd done all these other more serious roles. And then he volunteered to play the blind hermit for free. You know, that's it. It was a four-day shoot, you know, for a four-minute scene, and he did it for free. And I thought that's really cool. But I actually loved that scene so much. I was like, dude, who is that guy? I know him because he has this long beard, and and he just looks different. If you've ever seen Gene Hackman from, like, the 60s and 70s, it's clear it's Gene Hackman. But, man, if you're used to seeing him in the 90s or, like, later performances, you know, he just looks so different to me. I mean, I've watched a lot of, of Gene Hackman stuff in the 70s. But man, there was just something about this that caught me off guard. I loved it. All that to say, what more can I say about not only Young Frankenstein, but about Mel Brooks? There's too much to say for an intro piece here like this. The man was a comedy legend, still is. Young Frankenstein was his fourth film. I would say it's his best film. It's my favorite Mel Brooks movie. And, you know, he went on to make seven more, 11 total and uh, directing that is, and though you know some of them are stinkers, you know let's let's just you know Robin Hood Men in Tights, let's just get that out here, all right? <laughs> Maybe you're a fan, that's fine, but in my opinion, they're stinkers, some of them. But you know it is uh, difficult to argue that most of his films are not classics because they are, and and Brooks had his own voice, you know his own style. You can you can tell you're watching a Mel Brooks production. And I think that's why he's so special. So happy 95th birthday to you, Mr. Brooks. You know, keep on keeping on. Hey, listeners, if you've seen Young Frankenstein, you agree or disagree with my assessment of the film. I just said my assessment weird, but if you agree or disagree with my assessment of the film, please hit us up on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MediumCoolPod. Or you can email us at MediumCoolPod at gmail.com. Please give us your feedback. We'd love to hear from you. But without further ado, I'm going to go see Matthew Sosi, and we're going to talk about uh, you know, a couple of Bergman movies, long form. We're going to talk about Smiles of a Summer Night and Wild Strawberries. All right, everybody, I'm here with Matthew Sosi. Say hello, Matthew. As you just took a drink, I just ruined everything. <laughs> Hello. No, it's, what do you mean ruined? It's fine. You know what it is? It's natural. It's, you know, it's podcast verite. That's what go. this is. There you go. It really is, actually. It's a great phrase. That's what our subtitle is going to be. Medium Cool, a movie uh, podcast. An extra colon at the end. That's uh, right. Podcast Gene Seberg's going to show up sometime. And yeah, it's all that. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be great. Um, we're going to be talking today about Smiles of a Summer Night and Wild Strawberries, both written and directed by Ingmar Bergman. We're going to be digging into a few movies over the course of these next few months uh, in our Bergman Marathon. But I want to start real quick and tell every, all the listeners that um, I know that I believe you did as well, Matthew. But we are both watching these through the Criterion Collection's Ingmar Bergman box set, which has like 30 movies in it or something. It's absolutely crazy. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's insane. But I feel like you're just itching to say something, Matthew. You go for it. Tell us about this box. Set. Well, I first off, I want to thank the Criterion people. They didn't send it to me for free, but I want to thank Criterion for having those 50% off flash sales yeah. that they do a few times a year. Cause you'll be, it's amazing when you see that number go down on something like Bergman. Oh, I'm, oh, I could get that. Oh, this yeah. is, uh, I got this in, I think, like the beginning of 2019. And tried to, I, I, I was I, I was not very disciplined at that time. I thought, well, I can go through a disc a week. It's 30, it's 30 discs, folks, and, uh, and worth every penny. And, and then things happen. You know, life gets in the way. We, we're reviewing other things, you yeah. know, because we have yeah. other. These are first world problems, friends, with uh, film critics. We get movies sent to us, and we got to go through them, and then somebody, you know, anyway. And then pandemic, and then COVID hit. And uh, well, this is the perfect time to break into that. And by the way, there's that's a tough nut to crack is if you're quarantined and you're going to watch some of the films of Ingmar Bergman, not all of them, <laughs> but certain ones. And we'll, we'll get into that. So uh, I finally got some discipline, finished it. It took me about a year and a half before I finally finished it. And I, wow. I had written it up for... Um, I'd written it up for the film, yeah. And sure enough, as soon as I, I we had published the article... Criterion put out Essential Fellini. I'm like, ah, oh, damn it. And so I, and then they did a 50% and I got that. So yeah, yeah I, I I love the Bergman collection. I think, because there's a lot of titles I've not seen and a lot of titles I probably had, I've only seen like twice. Once when I saw it in college and then the first time I bought it on DVD and then upgraded. So what, what's your history with the box set? Dude, I mean, honestly, it's it's not unlike yours because you can't see it because it's literally like right off camera. But I also have the Essential Fellini box set that has been untouched at this point as well. And uh, I'm using the podcast and as, an, as a reason to watch through them because with the Essential Fellini, not that we're talking about that, but I got that as a like Christmas gift or birthday gift oh, or nice. something. Which was, yeah, yeah, great. The Bergman I bought myself in 2019 for my own birthday. I just bought the thing outright. <laughs> yes. Because yes. I was like, because think about this. When Criterion box sets go out of print, they're like $800. or so, Like, they get so expensive. And I'm like, this Bergman one is going to be $1,500 or more. I have to have it for when I'm ready to tackle it. And that's what we're doing. I'm waiting for the Kurosawa to get a Blu-ray treatment. <sighs> just saying. That would be such Please. a dream. Criterion folks. I'm going to say you and I can send their suggestions email um, every single day. We should just say, why don't you put the uh, Kurosawa 100 on Blu-ray, dude? Because and let me get in the closet on my birthday. <laughs> yeah. I mean, anyways, the with Bergman, though. Um, so I and I'll talk a little bit more about this. I'm sure once we, we get into these two movies, but I'd seen both of these yeah. before. But okay. Wild Strawberries I saw when I first got into film and I was watching Kurosawa and Fellini and all those guys and everyone kept talking about Ingmar Bergman. So I watched The Seventh Seal because that's like the big title that was also at uh, what Holly, was Hollywood Video, I think. And so I rented uh, it there because they had that. They didn't have very many Bergman. But surprisingly, they had Wild Strawberries also. And oh, I realized wow. they both came out. So uh, at the same year, so I watched uh, Seventh Seal, which for someone just getting into film, within a year of watching movies and all I'd seen is like French New Wave stuff I didn't understand but thought was really hip and cool, you know, uh, dude, Bergman, the Seventh Seal is a tough nut to crack for someone that at that point, you know what I mean? It is. It is. I, I, uh, I am a kid of the seventies. So I knew the influences. I, I grew up, uh, I'm sorry. I'm, a, I'm an old white guy. So I grew up on Woody Allen films 
and his stamp is all over Bergman's stamp is all over a bunch of Allen films, whether it's moments or, you know, even something as blatantly as interiors, yeah. which is kind of yeah. his, um, kind of his cries and whispers or any other thing. But, um, but yeah, I think a lot of people right out of the gate, you think seventh seal and persona. Yeah. And those are really, really hard films. I remember seeing those in college and, you know, a lot of it just went over my head. I didn't have the life experience and, it's one of the great, as I've said many times before, what's great about film, what's great about art is the art doesn't change, you do. Yes. So yes. if it yes. didn't, you know, if it didn't gird your loins at 22, <laughs> go go back at 30, go back at 40. And that was the thing of, and, and what's cool about this collection is it's curated. It is not, in, you know, the Fellini one is in chronological order. I couldn't fathom the Bergman set being in chronological order. So there's, there's films that are connected and we get into themes and we get into connections. And I think the, the two that we're talking about today, today, these are probably for me as good a one one to get into Ingmar Bergman. Cause I mean, it's like throwing somebody in the deep end of the pool. If you're playing chess with death or, you know, the leave Ullman BB Anderson split screen, that's hard. That's really hard. Yeah. Well, I'll say this, you know, I saw Wild Strawberries and Seven Steel were the first two films I saw. And then everyone's talking about, uh, and I loved Wild Strawberry. I thought that was really cool. But the only scene I remembered like a few months afterwards was the opening dream sequence. Like I didn't remember mm -hmm. the movie. I was like, oh yeah, it's about this right. old guy doing a road trip. But this dream sequence, like that's all I cared about. Then I watched Persona. And I'll say this, for a long time, that was my favorite Bergman film for the uh -huh. visuals alone. Like, I oh, just gosh. thought it was so incredible. And then I yep. watched Hour of the Wolf, and I was like, oh, my God, I love this. Like, it, the end is so bizarre. I just was, dude, I was, it's slow as shit, okay? But it was, yeah. like, so good. But honestly, I've, I tallied it up. I've only seen six Bergman movies, or maybe seven. Um, and I haven't seen a Not lot of long. them. Yeah, I know. Well, I'm, that's what we're doing, right? Like, I'm digging <laughs> in. I'm, this is the 75th anniversary anniversary year of his first film crisis it's been 75 yeah. years to the year and so that's why i wanted to do this big bergman thing plus you and i had been talking about it for a while and um right. i needed to dig into this set it seemed like a perfect reason and so watching you know smiles of a summer night which i saw in Wes garing's class at ball state university go Cardinals! yay big shout out to dr garing love you <laughs> yeah Wes. and he's a big comedy guy as you know and so he was like yeah, yeah we're, we're gonna watch bergman but we're not doing the seventh seal we're gonna do smiles of a summer night and i'm like okay Great choice. and i'll Great just tell choice. you this man i i was i appreciated it more than i liked it at the time and sure. i'll tell you this we're going to get into it. All I'll say is I liked it more this time around. Um, yeah. And like you said, art doesn't change. We do. And I think in both cases, I have changed a lot. And, oh, I'm about to get into Wild Strawberries. We can't go there yet. No, no, we'll no, we'll, no. we'll get there it's, later. It's, but, yeah. It's funny. I have a, another Ball State connection that because um, when I was, I believe I was, a, I can't remember, I was a freshman or a sophomore, but Ball State Theater staged um, uh a little night music, which is what Stephen Sondheim, the musical is based off of Smiles on a Summer Night. I've always said about Bergman films. If you're a musical nerd, you got to see it. You got to see this film because of um, because of a little night music. Yeah. If you're a horror film, old school horror film, you need to watch Bergman because of the Virgin Spring. 
Oh, if dude. you're a fan of Last House on the Left, you got to watch Virgin Spring. Well, Kubrick even was a huge yeah. fan of yeah. of uh, all those guys, Fellini and everybody. But Bergman yeah. was one, and also like you talked about Woody Allen, which I understand is kind of a you know can be a controversial topic for some, but you know I guess we're both old white guys because yeah, uh, dude. I mean, even watching something like Another Woman. There, mm-hmm. one one of the story arcs is like wild strawberries, like you know, and, like the Gina yeah, Rollins uh, or whatever. A, Mids- a Midsummer Night sex comedy is basically yep. smiles on a summer night, and there's a same summer, with love and death. Summer night, yeah, smiles on a summer night is the first disc on the Bergman collection. I was so confused reason. by the way when I saw this. I didn't actually realize it was kind of by, like thematically put together. So yeah. I was like going into it. I'm like, wait, this is all wrong. <laughs> like I'm just looking through it trying to figure it out when I first Trust got me, it. When you when you get through this, you're going to be like, yeah, man, I couldn't get through because a lot of the low budget stuff or the stuff that he didn't write, but he directed and you'll see the, you'll see the sparks of, Oh, this is going to, he's going to utilize this work or this look in, in other pictures. Yeah. I mean, I did, I did the, you know, just to give ourselves way here, we're, we're doing this episode way early. So I haven't even finished my early Bergman stuff yet. So outing myself, right. but I have done the episode on crisis. A lot of people dig on that. And it's not great for a Bergman movie. Don't get me wrong. But man, I no. actually still liked it. I mean, not I didn't think it was great, but I enjoyed it, which just makes me more excited to think that's his first movie. And if that's where that is, I cannot yep. wait. Because, dude, I've, I have never, up to this point, I've never seen Fanny and Alexander, any version. I've never seen uh, Scenes of a Marriage. I've never seen Cries and Whispers. I've never, yeah, like, all, a lot of those, I've never seen uh, The Virgin Spring. Like, you, like, dude, there's a lot of those hits that I've always wanted to see, but I never had the motivation to see. And so now uh-huh. we have this, and I'm going to be doing these seven movies with you. Um, and just just to kind of give everyone uh, a rundown real quick, we're doing Smiles of a Summer Night and Wild Strawberries. In the future, we'll be doing The Virgin Spring, Through the Glass Darkly, Cries and Whispers, Scenes from a Marriage, and Fanny and Alexander. I am stoked to get all these. And, and I'm assuming with Scenes from a Marriage and Fanny and Alexander, we're going to be doing the theatrical versions. Uh, for this, I would assume we can talk about we'll that. See. I guess, yeah, we'll see. Because we'll they see. also have TV versions as well. So, there are, by the way, don't watch Virgin Spring and Through a Glass Darkly as a double bill. Don't do that to yourself. It's gonna happen. Don't do it. Don't do it back to back. Seriously, man. Oh, oh my god. god. It's. It's. I mean, that, and and part of it was why I was saying I want to do like I was. My original goal was to like do one a week. You know, I, I don't because I'm also the guy that goes through the commentaries and the special features. So it, it'll t- it would take me a couple days to get through a single disc and all of its features. But anyway, that's it's your viewing habits. You know, have at it. But I'm telling you, there's some double bills that don't need to be made. T- take me a tr- give me a trip to Bummerville, brother. I'm ready. To go. <laughs> <laughs> no. So we're, we're going to start talking about summers of a smile night or smile night. Uh, smiles of a summer night. I'm okay. Don't you want worry. a beer. It's <laughs> it's coffee. It's not beer. Yeah. Okay. Um, Smiles of a Summer Night from 1955, written and directed by Ingmar Bergman, starring uh, Eula Jacobson uh, or Jakobsen is probably how it's pronounced. Uh, we, we apologize in advance for our lack of uh, oh, uh, Scandinavian tongue. So. It's gonna it's gonna be bad. Uh, Ava Dahlbeck, yep. uh, Beck, and uh, Harriet Anderson. And it was released December 26th, 1955. And this Bergman comedy takes place in Sweden at the turn of the century where members of the upper class and their servants find themselves in a romantic tangle that they try to work out amidst jealousy and heartbreak. The film should uh, basically be called Infidelity the Movie. That's what this movie should be called. Uh, Between his marriages... 
With his late wife and his current marriage with Anne, Frederick Eggerman uh, had an affair with a prominent stage actress, the beautiful Desiree Armfelt. Uh, but she broke it off. She broke off the relationship, and she's having an affair with an army officer, Count Carl Magnus Malcolm. And the Count's wife, Charlotte, is an old friend of Anne Eggerman, who's now, of course, married to, you know, the, the other Eggerman guy, uh, Frederick Eggerman. Oh, my gosh. It's just all over the place. Yeah. It's a tangled and web. It is a tangled web. And so uh, of love and heartbreak, mind you, very intertwined. Yep. But you also begin to see the real Bergman come out here. I think he starts to peek through with the directing style that we'll come to know and love uh, in his films as his films progress. And we also get the lovely Bergman regular B.B. Anderson here as oh. Petra, servant of Anne Eggerman. And this was the first collaboration of many, many to come. And we will cover some hip, of those here in the future. Hip swiveling maid Petra, as is described <laughs> yeah. in a scene. That's and, true. Uh, yes, Ms. Anderson, thank you. Yeah, but, <laughs> but though, I'll, I'll say this, but though I did not really find this comedy funny so much, I still kind of love this movie. Okay. Well, it's yeah. The, the 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 story is inspired by the works of Moliere and Chekhov. I'm sorry, theater minor theater degree, and it, and it's it's comedy, but not in the ha ha sense. Yeah, um, exactly. There is a lot of comedy of wits over belly laughs. Um, I, I've said before many times that nobody does inner turmoil like Ingmar Bergman. You'll hear me say that on this podcast a lot. And in the case of this, it's more the inner turmoil of being humiliated, of being at a certain class level, especially with Frederick and the, and the, the soldiers, uh, of being embarrassed in public, especially when you're trying to have a marriage, have a mistress, have a social setting, and then you get into a weekend in the country, which is a song from a little night music, and you know all of these counting, all these you know connecting parts get together. Frederick's son is uh, yeah has a thing for the maid, and even though Frederick's son is closer to the age of his daughter of his of his wife, his wife is nineteen. I didn't write this gang. Bergman wrote it. Um, <laughs> No you wonder know, Woody Allen loves this, but sorry. <laughs> I, uh, no, you could say he's too old, but uh, see, see, it reminds That's me funny. of the time my daughter walked past. I was watching Errol Flynn as Robin Hood, and she goes, he's pretty. And I said, I'm sorry, honey, you're way too old for him. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but yeah, all of these characters are going to wind up in a comedy of manners. And so, yeah, it's it's more costume costume comedy than, you know, fall down, yuck, yuck. Yeah. Well, I want to I want to ask you a question to kick this off real quick, because like sure. I think I think I already know where you're going with this, but I'm just going to kind of give you a starting point here. Matthew, how do you feel just in general about Smiles of a Summer Night on a personal level. How do you feel about that? And and if you love it like I do, to kind of add, add a leading question there, uh, yeah, what, right. what draws you in with this movie? Well, I, and honestly, I um, a little night music I got to know first. I remember I, I got to see that in college. And then um, and it was one of those things where like, oh, hey, this is based on, and I think, I want to say Bracken Library had this, so I probably watched it in college oh, a couple sure. of years later and realized, oh my God, I, I saw this musical. So again, when you're a 20-year-old knucklehead, you're, I think you kind of gravitate toward the sun 
and the the 19 year old wife because you maybe got a better shot there or desiree <laughs> and and then you know you become as old as frederick and I'm like god what does a what do you talk and what do you say to your 19 year old bride and as they show in this film not a lot not no. a lot there it's just so and it's a very confusing time for her because part of the whole thing at the very beginning is that they've been married for two years and it's unconsummated <laughs> See, there you go, folks. Again, I, 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 we did not write this. Ingmar Bergman wrote this. And uh, so, you know, send it to his estate. At the time he, Bergman had done this, uh, I remember, because he had, he had two films that did not do well. They were dramas, Sawdust and Tinsel, A Lesson in Love. His finances were low. His relationships with the women in his life, that was plural, gang. They were bad. He had stomach pains, bad health. And he decided, apparently, according to the legend, he had two choices, he thought, kill himself or write a comedy. He did the latter. And Luckily. so- yeah, and, and there's always been a weird connection between the ladies in his films and the ladies in his life. Lee Volman, of course, being the probably the best example. So, and with his theater background, uh, he was a fan of Chekhov. He was a fan of Moliere. And those are, those are comedies about class more than situation. It's, it's class and character. And I, I think this was his kind of his Valentine to those playwrights. That's why it's set in 1901. You could have set this in any other era. You could have set it in modern because there were still rich douchebags then with, mm -hmm. you know, child brides, but he wanted to set it in an era that I think that these plays of uh, the other writers would have been, would have been uh, up on stage. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know what, you, you keep mentioning the, uh, the, play aspect of it and we were talking about the comedy thing and it's funny because uh did you ever see i think it's melinda and melinda which is also a woody allen movie but it was a oh, much yeah, later one. where you same situation one is a drama one is a comedy absolutely well, kind of but what i'm referring to yes but what i'm referring to is at the very beginning you have wallace sean and i forget who the other person is and they're arguing um, what is this story a comedy or a tragedy right. and that's what this whole movie reminded me of I feel like you can Absolutely. almost watch it as both because it isn't ha-ha comedy. It's comedy of wits, like you said, and there's like there's a lot of um, – it's funny, but I, like I said, I never once, I don't think, laughed out. Like I never actually chuckled, but I found it no. so amusing, and I found it so interesting from beginning to end, not, not only because you start to see some of those kind of trademark Bergman things, right? Uh, some no. of the shots, some of the close-ups, you start getting a lot of – the really cool lighting that he does. And it's, it's just kind of starting. It's peeking in here. Uh, but man, I mean, there are a few scenes and I'm not going to out them uh, right now, but especially toward the end, I'll just say this. Uh, the, the soot. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, like yeah. that, that whole sequence, like, dude, that was so awesome. Like that whole scene was like just so fun. And in my mind, thinking about it, it makes me almost laugh now in retrospect, because it's such a ridiculous like moment you know what i mean but at the same yeah. time it's like not laugh out loud funny when you're watching it but there's just something so amusing about it and i think that's really kind of what captured me watching this was not only the bergman style peeking through here finally uh but because guys he made like what 11 movies or something prior to this none of which really yeah. made a huge hit smiles of a summer night <laughs> yeah. was actually a like smash box office hit here uh, well, I don't know about box office hit, but it was a huge well, international was, he, success. Yeah, he got the uh, special prize at the 1956 Con, and this this kind of launched him internationally. This and uh, 
you know, for you young folks out there, at one time, the films of Bergman and Fellini and Kurosawa and Truffaut, it was an event. I mean, they, you know, they, they would do a new film every year or every other year. And there were certain, you know, we, there were art houses, but there weren't as many back then. But they would, they would come to town. And the fact that they had a crossover appeal or you know, American distribution, uh, it was a cinematic event. To yeah. see the, you know, let's go see the latest Bergman. Let's go see the latest Bellini. Um, and this this was the launching pad for it. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I remember uh, listening to an interview late in Bergman's life. This is probably somewhere between 2001 to three, like right before he died, you know, and he had this interview and he said uh, that Smiles of a Summer Night is when it all changed. Like that was his big, like that was his breakthrough. And the studio made a fortune because the film was a success, not just in Sweden or not just in Europe, but everywhere. He just yep. uh, really killed it. And what's awesome is the studio then gave Bergman free reign from then to the end of his career. And the studio, funny enough, you talked about the Cannes Film Festival. The studio didn't even ask Bergman or tell him that they were taking it to Cannes. They just, mm -hmm. they just, he learned about it after it did, it was successful there. He learned it after the fact. Um, and uh, it was also, you know, nominated for the Palm d'Or and everything. And, and uh, yeah, basically after that, Bergman did whatever he wanted. And you see that in the work, at least the movies that I've seen after this. Uh, mm -hmm. you, you see someone almost like Kubrick once he started getting free reign and different people, like he brings 2001 out. You have this clown who brings seventh seal you know <laughs> you know what i mean like really blowing out here with a bunch of crazy stuff yeah i mean director uh final cut is a lost art it's and i think deep you know that's what every artist wants no matter what art you you create is to be able to say it's all yours and so and and this that was that era where Absolutely. for the most part you got to do it up until the, up until about the mids well there were certain ex ex exceptions like kubrick uh, Clint Eastwood was another one, but I mean, obviously, when the blockbusters and could, took over and it became a more of a business than it already was, um, that started to change. Yeah, there's only bit there was, and and also he only Bergman only made a couple of well, one film in Hollywood, a Hollywood picture. I say that with finger quotes, and then another one in in the English language. But that was it. He was he stuck to his guns and his in his native tongue, for the most part, in his own backyard, uh, with exception of a few years in the 70s. But uh, but yeah, never left, never went Hollywood, didn't, didn't you know, move to California for tax shelter purposes. Uh, got an island. That's not bad. You know, to be on an island with Lee Oldman, that's that's uh, that's pretty good. So and a killer house with a freaking theater in it. And you see it all the time. One of the other fun things on this. And there is a, there is a documentary called Bergman Island, which I, I recommend. Of uh, yeah, he there's these little intros, and it's the same. It's the same beginning and the same end. It's a, a an all terrain vehicle pulls up to this little nondescript building, and then Ingmar comes out with his companion, and then they talk like an intro, an intro to the movie from one to three minutes, and then he throws his finger up, and it goes to the projection booth, and it starts, and it's so fun. Um, yeah, it's not a bad existence. Yeah, I think I think it's great. I want to talk real quick, going back to the Criterion Collection uh, box set here. Sure. God, how good is this restoration they used? This movie Damn looks it. incredible. Yeah, and and because a lot of these titles, we're, we're talking 50, 60-year-old films, and that's a never-ending... And, and that's one of the things that Criterion just does well. I mean, they, they take stuff and they clean it up, they restore it, 
you you know and, and what is still kind of like um in the old days when when disc came out or we had a uh, widescreen video i always used this sh- well there was but i would always use the shootout from the good the bad and the ugly as an example here's how you widescreen and i and it's, it was a great visual selling point well i'm i'm still a sucker for the um the examples of restoration where you get the side by side split here it was before it was cleaned up and here it is now that it's cleaned up and i think they're great visual tools so this is what you're paying for this is why we're it's important to restore these and yeah some of them are boxed like uh smiles is and, and some of the earlier stuff is that's, that's fine you know you've your television's big enough it'll it'll still work you know <laughs> they can't all be widescreen 70 millimeter Lawrence of Arabia things, but yeah, they look great. Yeah. I mean, they're even crisis. The first one, I mean, dude, and I don't know who restored it. Sometimes criterion uh, doesn't restore it themselves. They'll get a restoration from studio canal in Europe or, you know, Scorsese's restoration company. Yeah. For your hard work. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so uh, whoever did it and they might've done this one. I'm not exactly sure. I I don't have that in front of me. But, dude, it looks great. If, if you're interested in seeing more Bergman or you're already a fan and you're considering getting this, wait till the 50% off thing, like, <laughs> like Matthew Sosie said. Unless you're a high roller, unless you can afford the full price, man. I mean, yeah. we'd, we'd love to hang out with you if you could. But uh, the, 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 other, the other thing about Bergman is he had not one but two great cinematographers in his career. He started, and this one, Smiles of the Summer Night, was done by uh, Gunnar Fischer, who, Summer Interlude, Summer with Monica, Seventh Seal, The Magician, Wild Strawberries, which we'll talk about, The Devil's Eye, that's a comedy. There's, there's an actual kind of ha-ha comedy from Bergman called The Devil's Eye. And then, and then to switch over to Sven Nickyst who pretty much did everything else. Wow, yeah. Um, great use of black and white and shadows, and, and especially in both films, especially Wild Strawberries. Uh, Fisher it does a great job with the outdoors. Dude, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm an absolute sucker, too. I mean, I am a complete mark for, for beautiful, old-school black-and-white film photography. So... Yeah. Like watching any of these older movies that get restored. I mean, I'll just buy a Criterion black and white movie just because it's there. <laughs> like, I don't give a shit. Like, I just want to it, see. It, and even even yeah. with like their silent pictures, you know, uh, which we're about we're gonna talk about uh, Victor Herstrom in Wild Strawberries, but yeah. uh, you know, he was involved in like the Phantom Carriage, which Criterion also put out. And it's like mm-hmm. I love buying those old silent films that are restored too, because you get to see such a depth that would have just was never there. You know what I mean? And and so you get these yep. restorations, which, you know, like Japanese restorations, for example, are usually pristine because they actually took care of a lot of their reels. And it looks yep. like Sweden did the same because, dude, I'm telling you, I, I've put every one of these discs in because every time I get any box set, I always put them in and skim through a little bit just to see what it looks like. And I take it out just to get myself hyped. I did this when I bought it like two years ago. But every one of them look incredible so i just i i have to i'll probably talk about it again when we get to wild strawberries because the restoration go ahead and it's like every shot looks like something that i mean you could pause it and you could you could frame it on your and put it on your wall absolutely Um, i actually thought because i work at a screen printing company and i was uh, like i'm about to take i should say this during wild strawberries but i'll just say this now we'll come back to it the final uh one of the final close-ups 
of Herstrom at the end of Wild Strawberries. Nice. I was like, I just want to take that picture out and put it on a shirt. Anyway, give me a picture of Petro, and that'll be that'll be good. (laughs) Well, unfortunately, her her hips can't swing whenever she's on a t-shirt, but I guess you can make them. Not the way I hang it. Man, what are so back back to Smiles of a Summer Night here? You know, were there any characters that stood out to you that actually kind of like connect with you, or or something that well, you? Well, like I like I said, I think when we were when I was in college and I saw this, obviously um, his son, you know, angst ridden. You have to do the gestures, and it's it's everything is so serious, and and the fact that you have your dad who's you know married to somebody you should be going out with, <clears throat> um, and and so you know there's that, and I think even there's a bit of jealousy as I was watching it in college, like what's this old dude doing with uh, with Anne, and then even there's like what's this old dude doing with Desiree? You know? <laughs> so no, just, it's just the, the interplay with everybody. And the fact that, yeah, the, you have this, uh, this army officer that's just kind of coming from out of, not I say out of nowhere, but he's in a different, it's a different class system. The, you know, the military behavior and the military class system is different than the social setting. So that, yeah. that gets thrown into it's, it, you know, it almost feels like your, your favorite uh, weekend at home. You know, when you have to go home for Thanksgiving or Christmas and then every all the relatives come and, well, what are we going to talk about? So, <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Dude, I, I, I mean, Desiree, played by Ava Delbeck, is one of my favorite characters in the whole movie. And, and I'll yeah. tell you the scene that really knocks it home is when Frederick and Desiree are in her apartment. This is right. This is right before and during the first introduction of the count that comes into it. Mm-hmm. This this soldier. And dude, that that is the closest scene I think to traditional comedy, where the witty kind of like back and forth dialogue. There's like a rhythm to it, and they're kind of going back and forth, and there's yep. they just hit the emotional gamut as they're talking, where you know they're like angry at each other and they're like happy, and clearly, of course, implying that there's things going on. Of course, there is also I'll just say this as vaguely as possible. There's also a child involved. Uh, you, know <laughs> you know what I'm talking Da-da-da. about. And um, and uh, no one knows what the child means unless you've seen it. So just deal with it. That's right. Uh, it's not yeah, really right. a spoiler, spoiler, but spoiler alert on a sixty-year-old. But no, no we're not. Do, we're not doing that here. Well, no, no, no. Yeah, it's. Well, but the thing is, it's like it's just like it's almost a bit for comedy. Like it's not even yeah. really like a narrative thing. And and that stuff, like man, I that scene is the first scene that like truly hooked me. Though I mean, I was in from the beginning, but man, the rhythm. And it was mostly Desiree. I love Frederick too. He's the actor yeah. does that great. But man, Desiree, it's not I thought just was for fantastic. his girl Friday anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, no, no, no. You're okay. You, uh, you, but, can, you, know, you can you can be fast and witty and not be in English. And and that was, yeah. that's a great example of that. It is. Well, that's what I thought of. Is old Hollywood is exactly what yeah. I thought of in that one scene. But then when the count comes in, there's a point where. You know, uh, Frederick is being kind of an asshole, like a passive aggressive asshole to him. And eventually the count goes, are you being impudent or whatever, <laughs> whatever. And he just goes, Frederick just goes, certainly <laughs> like just, but there's like no change in their faces. They're just looking nope. at each other and he's just like straight up just owns it. Like, yes, I'm being an asshole to you right now. You know what I mean? Uh, I, it's I just, one of those things you, you wish you could pull that off. 
Oh, and and gosh. and pull it off. Well, pull it off and not because because today you probably get biffed in the face. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. then it's a class system, and you're a barbarian if you dare strike somebody. Or you know maybe this is still the era of uh, gloves in the face and pistols at dawn. I don't know. That's, well, that's what the count's like. You, you're right. waiting for him to pull a glove out and slap someone because right? <laughs> he's talking about duels, and he's been in like seven or fifteen duels or something, and yeah. he's been shot eight times and stabbed. Such I mean. You know, but it's, He's Harold it's, Gould in Love and Death. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, Love and Death is basically this movie, but like Woody Allen's version, you know. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I, so I really, I love Desiree. Everyone involved in that scene I just brought up. I mean, that is just one of the yeah. signature scenes. The scene with the soot, as I brought up before, yeah. uh, toward the end of the film is fantastic. I mean, dude, I thought what they imply happens actually happened. And I was like, that's dark, dude. Especially yep. whenever the count comes out laughing. And I'm just like, oh my God. And then all the while, Henrik, the son, is doing something really dark as well. I mean, there's a lot of darkness toward the end that ends up almost, you know, there's almost a levity to it by the end afterwards because these, a variety of things happen that just start toying around with the ideas of, of love and relationships and how all of these things intertwine and, and also yep. at the same time, you know, like how frail they can be. Yeah. And I think with, with Bergman, I, when I talked, when I said before about nobody does inner turmoil like him, that's any politics, love, war, sex, love, family, anything, everything, you know, and, and yeah, there is a bit of darkness because he was kind of writing himself out of a funk at this time. And, uh, and you know, it's, it, it is still a fun fly on the wall picture. You want to, you want to spend a weekend, not to talk with a lot of them, but you'd love to be in there just kind of with a, with a, with a glass of port and listening to, and seeing literally or physically or, you know, verbally doors in, you know, running in and out almost farcical. And, uh, yeah, but there, there's some dark moments, but, and, and, but you, I think we laugh at those. You feel like the, you feel like Hugh Grant's friends in four weddings and a funeral, <laughs> just kind of almost mystery science theater of just riffing all of this weekend posh, you know, behavior, uh, and romance and partner changing. And by the way, friends, there's some partner changing in this, uh, that if you haven't figured that out there, there will be some changes. Yeah. Oh, and it's great. I mean, just, yeah. just the the way that the that the big partner change at the end, I'll just say, I'll just say yeah. involving Henrik. That's still not giving anything away, <laughs> that, dude. That's great because it comes out of such darkness, and that's what I like about the movie. When there's something dark, and there is a lot of dark shit in here, but mm -hmm. like it always finds a point of levity that, like a scene that kind of brings some levity to it, and and almost ends almost in a good. No matter how dark it gets, there's almost yep. like a. I just really like the levity. That's basically the term that keeps coming to mind. And and with, with Bergman's style, I often attribute three things, and not only these, but I often think of existential fears. His characters often deal with existential fears, sexual anxieties, or demonic visitations. And when I say that, there are several s movies that have uh, visitations, exactly. but I also include, like, the dreams in Wild Strawberries, and I also yep. include things like, you know, death in The Seventh Seal, I would consider as that. And so uh, you have these 
I use demonic lightly, but you know what I mean? Like these types of visitations oh, yeah. or these visions. And this film is all about sexual anxieties. <laughs> I mean, when yeah. you watch it, if you if you are still a Woody Allen fan or once were and can at least appreciate uh, on retrospectively, this is, I'm not surprised he loved this movie. Because with, oh, absolutely. <laughs> it's just like a Woody Allen movie made in Sweden. <laughs> yeah, I mean. You know, and there's you need levity in in drama, just like you need dramatic points in comedy. And there's there's a there's a delicate way of handling that. Um, I mean, even in the, the darkest Shakespeare tragedies, there's some funny stuff in there. And I think sometimes as an audience member and not just in the U.S., I think other places where, you, you know, it, you're maybe uncomfortable to laugh at a particular dark moment but i think you need that you need that levity you need that moment you need that tension and it's not a freddy krueger krueger one-liner um you know being shoved down your throat from a horror a lot of horror films in the 80s um but yeah there's there's a balance of light and dark and funny and tragic and if you can find that right balance and i think bergman does that most of the time in, in his career um it, it works really well yeah i was i was going through the uh, the list of woody allen films if you is if you wanted a gateway from bergman to allen stardust memories another woman that you've mentioned crimes and misdemeanors deconstructing harry interiors which was his follow-up to annie hall i thought it was good <laughs> good timing on him but he follows up his best picture winner which is a serious ass drama that is very much like Autumn Sonata and Cries and Whispers, which you'll which you'll get to, but uh, yeah, um, good 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 balance of uh, both ends, I think, with this film. Yeah, I mean, so back to what I was saying earlier, whenever we first start talking about my introduction into this or or what yeah. the box set means, uh, like I said, I saw this in Wes Gehring's class, and I thought it was good, but I appreciated it more than I enjoyed it because I could see all the working pieces and how the gears were moving and how things were put together, and I thought that, that was really great. But I just I couldn't connect with it for some reason. And man, I watched this and I was just in it. I watched it late too. I haven't had much time through the day because it was like I'm working and then I have stuff to do when I get home. And then it was always at like 10 o'clock. I start a Bergman movie, which is dangerous. All right. <laughs> Last night I started it at like 11 and I watched oh Wild Strawberries. I mean, these were like late and I had to work the next day. But I was like, no, I'm getting these in because I, you know, tonight I have to watch another one, not a Bergman, but uh, the the movie for this week's uh, podcast. And and uh, yeah, it's it kept me going, man. Like because, you know, when I think of it, I, I'm thinking of like Persona, which I think is hard for anyone to start at 11 p.m. and, and make it through. Not because it's boring uh, for no. me, at least. I think it's incredible, but it's like it, it is a different ball game. This, though. To, you wa can to watch Persona, I'm sorry, to watch Persona and then go to bed, that's not a wise move. <laughs> it's really, I, I tell people all the time, especially, like, you watch something dark and something like that, but don't go to bed. Watch Bob's Burgers, watch Archer, cleanse your palate or something. You're going to watch Persona or Sophie's Choice or, you know, Schindler's List. And like, Honey, let's, let's just go to bed. Yeah, so, like, when you get to Virgin Spring, Put something in funny afterwards. Just <laughs> what do if it. I like it's, going to bed just I, awful? Bummerville. I know that's, and by the way, that should be another offshoot of your cinematic podcast is Welcome to Bummerville. That's <laughs> going to be great. a new series. Yeah, that's great. I should only, I should do a different day where all I do is talk about the bummeriest movies. Just, 
you know, bring 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 back. Uh, we don't get enough talk about the painted bird on here. I need to bring that. Michael back. Ha- any Michael Haneke films? Anyone? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Lars von Trier. All of them, man. One time I did a double feature, real quick. I did I did oh, Melancholia, God. and then I and I started at like 10 p.m. So I was up until in the morning. But I did Melancholia, and then I watched uh, The Tree of Life, which is not so much. Why would you bummer. do that? Back to back, dude. Coincidentally, because I was doing my end of the year thing in 2011, so I had to like oh, cram them yeah, all in. There is that. Yeah, there's a uh, little insight. Little inside baseball, friends. At the end of the year, we get screeners, and and we're we're, we're all busy at the IFJA and elsewhere, where, where we're trying to compile our list and what could be award material, and sometimes. It, it it just becomes a chore, <laughs> and when you get Lars von Trier and Terrence Malick and and so, you know Tom Ford's latest thing, and you're like, oh my god! And so yeah. every now and then you need to cleanse your palate with I don't know a spaghetti western or something really dumb. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, dude, I was balance out the navel gazing. I was I was in I was in heaven. I watched these two movies and I'm like, I love these. I still do. Anyways, um, yes. Uh, what would you tell listeners about this movie before we move on to Wild Strawberries? And we can kind of call back to this one. We don't have to completely right. put it to bed. But, you know, just to kind of leave this off and move on to Wild Strawberries so we can get into that as well. What what would you leave people with with this movie? What would you recommend they do with this here? Well, you know, you have a couple opportunities here. As I, as I mentioned before, if you're a musical theater fan and you love Sondheim and you love a little night music, you should really check this out. Um, or watch this and listen to uh, Little Night Music. There's a couple of soundtracks out there. There is a film version from the mid, early mid-70s. I don't know if it's available in print, or I, I don't know if it's in print or not. I believe, uh, like, Elizabeth Taylor's in it. I think there's a, also a filmed stage version. There was a revival a few years back. It was Angela Lansbury and Catherine Zeta-Jones. I don't know if that is available on video or not. But um, but no, I, as I said, if, if you if you've not done a Bergman film, the the two that we're talking about here, and by the way, they're number one and number three in the collection. These are really easygoing spot start ones to start with. And uh, Smiles on a Summer Night. If you, you know, like I said, if you if you enjoy uh, you know sex comedies without there's no sex um but you know if you join if you enjoy costume class comedies um this is a good place to start i think it's a really gorgeous looking and fun not not in the happy gilmore sense of the word but uh you know if you love costumes and class system and a little little naughtiness um this is a good way to go yeah it's i mean it's it's uh Definitely a cheeky movie. That's what I would call it. It's a cheeky Very movie. Very good. That's a good one. Yeah, it's cheeky. Yeah. Uh, if, if you're interested in seeing this, uh, since we're going to move on, if you're listening and you're interested in seeing Smiles of a, uh, of a Summer Night, you can rent it on YouTube or Apple TV. And if you have the Criterion channel, it is streaming there currently. I just confirmed that. So uh, definitely go check that out. Let us know what you think at Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. For now, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back and talk about Wild Strawberries. All right, everybody, we are here to, we are back, rather, to talk about Wild Strawberries from 1957, also written and directed by Ingmar Bergman, starring uh, Victor Herstrom, B.B. Anderson, again, and uh, Ingrid Thulin. 
And it was released December 26th, 1957. This guy loves his... Uh, or wait, 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 wait. That doesn't look right. Hold on one second. Because both of those dates are the same. There's no way that's the same. I actually or think Smiles of a there. Summer Night was uh, December 23rd, but it doesn't matter. The point is in December, the end of December hey. around Christmas time, he loves releasing movies. That's what if we're Will Smith about. could have July 4th for many years, Ingmar Bergman can have any date he wants. <laughs> there. <laughs> the point is, it was released at the end of 1957, and after living a life marked with uh, by coldness, Isaac, a uh, 70-something aging professor, is forced to confront the emptiness of his existence as he travels from his home to an honorary award ceremony where he is the guest of honor. Disturbed In by... Bummersville. <laughs> Bummersville, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Disturbed by a nightmare that he had the night... Uh, before he decides uh, to hit the road and clear his mind rather than fly to the event. One uh, or on, uh, on this road trip, rather, uh, he is accompanied by uh, at different times by his daughter-in-law, Marianne, a rambunctious trio, which includes the great B.B. Anderson and Ooh, a contentious, growl. Uh, <laughs> the growl and a contentious couple after a car wreck. Each of these uh, people force a different perspective for which Isaac reevaluates his past whether it be through flashback, dream sequence, or conversation and introspection. Bergman had two major hits prior to Wild Strawberries, Smiles of a Summer Night, which we just discussed, and The Seventh Seal, which came out earlier the same year. But these three really start to kick off Bergman's style. I mean, I think by this point, yep. we really have a good handle on what is to come <clears throat> Excuse me, as we move forward through his work. Now, Matthew, I'm going to yes. lead you in with this. All right. Is Wild Strawberries a film about a man at the end of his life reaching a point of no regrets? Or is it about surviving one's past by remembering it and processing it so to accept the present? Or do you have a different interpretation altogether? What are your thoughts here? I'm going to answer yes. <laughs> so, um, no, I think it's both. It's a floor wax and a dessert topping when it comes to the, both of those. It's funny, I, your, your description of it um, I thus me me saying the college campus is located in Bummerville. Um, it's it is a it's an old man road trip picture, along with a nostalgia picture. When I say old man road trip pictures, you could also put in and here's your film festival. This film, Harry and Tonto, and the Straight Story. Oh my old, god, dude! I thought of the straight the story the whole time I was watching this too, and I haven't thought like I hadn't thought about that movie in forever. But yeah, that's G-rated David Lynch, friends. That's yeah. what you should check out. That I think Disney the put out year, <laughs> the same year. There was a G-rated David Mamet film, but that's another discussion for another time. I I have a dear friend from college who is a film instructor down in Georgia, who uh, who who's basically. Uh, one of the things that one of the nicknames I have for him is Mr. Fuck Nostalgia. The exception to the rule is Wild Strawberries. Um, as you mentioned, Dr. Dr. Borg is, is going on this trip. And uh, for, again, this was the film I first saw in college. And so I'm like, okay, old guy on the road. And that's kind of what I thought of it as. Uh, you you described it much more eloquently than I would have. I think I did the, it's like the uh, the Griffin Mill pitch in the player. Like, old guy on the road, there's no cat. You got to get a young person in there. You know, you got to throw in like Jules and Jim for just a little moment. And then, you know, an angry couple. And there's Max von Sydow as a gas station attendant. Okay, move on, move on. But um, 
I, I, I said many years ago, and I'm, I'm going to be long-winded in my answer. I use the example, as I said before, the, fil the film doesn't change, you do. I always said, I think the, the big chill should be watched every five years because uh, I was 13 when that film came out. Great acting, grown-ups in turmoil. That, that's kind of what I got out of it. And great soundtrack. 18, same thing. 23, I had a friend in college who actually committed suicide. So that there was a there was a connection to that. Then getting married, then having kids, then getting a job, then getting gray. It there's something new that you get out of it. And as I'm now getting closer and closer to Dr. Borg's age, um, and looking at the number of years I've been in business, you know, working and thinking about what has worked and what has not in my existence, and trying to do the right thing for my 19 year old. I'm like, yeah, this, uh, this, this can hurt. This can sting. And uh, you do, I, I'm going to borrow a quote from pre nine 11, crazy Dennis Miller, where he's like, nobody finds God on prom night. It's when you've painted yourself into a corner so far off that you, 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 you throw out a life preserve or you call for help of, of one way, shape or form. And I think he said, you know, you found God. Well, apparently God didn't see you coming. And, and so watching this, here's a guy who's trying to, I think, correct himself uh, along the way. And he, he gets, you know, not just the dreams, but he gets reminders of this based on who he picks up with the jewels. I like to call them jewels and gems. And, and the, the middle-aged couple who are, you know, yelling at each other. And also dealing with his uh, his daughter-in-law, who's who's his pregnant daughter-in-law, who is his traveling companion on this. Um, I think everybody wants to have a clean third act, you know, to make up for the you know the the your first act where you're developing, your second act when you become an adult and you probably make a lot of shitty decisions, and then hopefully you have a nice tight little bundle when the curtain goes down that's that's kind of that's it's a very long answer but that's what i think of when i when i watch wild strawberries especially <laughs> at, at age 51 yeah uh, dude i gotta Sir? tell you this i gotta tell you <laughs> yes this. first off restoration looks so great i mean that's absolutely so incredible so good looking i'm i'm getting i'm already digressing <laughs> at the end of the film and this doesn't spoil anything i'm just gonna say this yeah. you if you've seen it you know Isaac looks at Marianne, his daughter-in-law, as he's laying in bed, and he says, I like you, Marianne. And Marianne looks at him back and says, I like you too. I could not hold back the tears. Uh, dude, I have never had this experience with a Bergman film, and I've seen this. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> this is your thing of art doesn't change. You do. I watched this. I thought this movie, it made me laugh, and it crushed me. Yep. Dude, this movie is perfect to me like i adore every aspect and this is for a long time this was my favorite bergman this and persona were like at each other's like necks sure where i am right now of course i'm going to keep watching and it'll probably change but yep. like this is tops dude this is perfect and i think it's a great kind of gateway movie to get someone in if they're into this type of dialogue driven kind of uh self-exploration Life you know, choices. Yeah, yeah, all of those things. I mean, this is, dude, this is tops. And I have more to say, but go ahead. No, the ending, the ending is the way you bring that up. It, it reminds me for you, for you early 80s Hollywood folks, is, is uh, the final father-daughter moment in On Golden Pond. 
Mm. And it also it also really, really helps that you have a real life father, real life daughter doing the scene. But when she finally calls him dad instead of Norman and hugs, you're like, oh, God, what a what a falling kick to the chest. And uh, yeah, this this film has that that same ending of uh, just something is, you know, you, you forget how powerful your words are. Because we think they're just words. And then three simple or four simple words can make a hell of a difference. Well, that's that's exactly what I'm getting. I mean, you just nailed it. It's like, I like you. I like you, too. Those are we say that to people all the time. Like, that's nothing. But it's it's yep. because Bergman knows how to develop shit. And I talk about development all the time on this show. That, because- should, be in the, that should be in the Criterion Press Kit. <laughs> Bergman knows how to develop shit. Just yeah. Hyphen Austin cool. Glidden. Um, yeah, I want to be, I want to make sure that I'm coined for that. But the point is, dude, like I talk about it all the time. Cause we watch and review like newer movies all the time. I'm like, there's no development here. Like, yeah, it's, it was fun to watch, but this is bullshit. And I watch stuff like this and I'm like four fucking words, Matthew, four words yeah. lead me to tears because they develop yeah. it. And it's a callback to something earlier. And dude, I, I mean, th- I've been in a very nostalgic place in my life lately. Maybe I'm in that, that mid thirties you know, reevaluating my life period, which I'm the happiest I've was, ever been. But I was going to ask you, what, how old? Of, how old a man are you? I'm 36, and I the beard makes you look older. It looks good. Well, good. Thank you very much. I'm I am perfectly fine with with beginning to to gray and 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 you know get older. I'm perfectly fine with it. And I'm happiest I've ever been. But you know, I had a, a weird life growing up, and I didn't get to experience a lot of things a lot of people did. So I've been. I, I saw this video. Random caveat that it bring me back here. But I I saw this video that a friend of mine in 2003, whenever he was in my class, I didn't go to high school. though. I'm a a homeschool dropout for high school. I went to public school through middle school. And then my mom was freaked out because someone got beat with a hammer at the high school. And then she like homeschooled me. So they had this like weird Christian homeschool thing because my family was like all involved in, in the church. And my grandpa was a pastor and everyone in my family went to the church. It was all this thing. And so I didn't get to experience prom. I didn't get to experience all the high school stuff. My formative years were in a youth group, all right? You know what I mean? And so here's the thing. Here's the thing. Even if people want to bitch about their high school time, I just wanted – I want the opportunity to bitch about it. Do you get what I'm saying? Like I didn't have that. So I'm thinking about all these things I'm seeing in this video. It's 90 minutes of just like shitty camera work that this guy's just filming the last day of school, right? And I love it. I'm riveted because it's like I didn't live this. I don't know any – like I know so many people here, but I don't know any of these teachers, any of this stuff. And all of this to say, you know, I had this weird nostalgia for something I never experienced. And I, I just like got me really heady about all this stuff. Now, I'm not so much now, but uh, the past couple of weeks have gradually been less. But go ahead. I, I get it. I, I, um, I, I teach when I'm not doing this, among other things. I, I've been teaching a music appreciation class for middle schoolers. And I was talking about this with some other camp counselors. That's a long story. But with the middle schoolers, I always talk about and talk about their musical journey, your musical path. You're gonna, and one of the one week, one of the last classes we had, we discussed music that you loved and then you absolutely dismiss because you get into your teens and you develop different choices and you know you think you're going from you know pop bubblegum to serious music and eventually you'll come around. And, and so I said, and, and they gave me examples of stuff, songs they absolutely love and they can't listen to now. And I always say to them, because, uh, and I'll get to the 19 year old that lives in the house. 
of there's 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 the moment when you're in middle school or elementary school and you're either home for break or home for summer or you're sick at home especially like if it's a sick day you'll go back and i said what do you watch and they said stuff that you would and and it all came the same thing stuff that we watched when we were kids you know sesame street pbs stuff that you would deem you would at school say oh that's for babies and I'd say that's nostalgia. That's the first step of nostalgia. Any kid, and I was one of them, any kid who f- visits an elementary school while being in middle school or high school to middle school or college to high school, or co- I mean, I, I graduated Ball State and I stayed for an extra semester to work. That's a part of the nostalgia. I My daughter just finished her first year of college. I'm thinking about what I was doing in the summer of 1989 after my first year of college. Yeah, a lot of nostalgia, a lot of looking back. And and there's also the, um, I'm going to side rant for a minute, sorry. But um, there's the story of, there's or the study of, for a lot of people, they stopped listening to new music in their college years. That's fucking terrifying, man. <laughs> yeah, dude. That really is. Think about you. Know, so think about what you were listening to high school and college, and then, and then you stop. Now, granted, I also have work in radio where I'm constantly listening to new music in my field of of love and appreciation. But man, that's terrifying. That's like you know anything: music, film, theater, literature, art. Just, uh, just stopping. That's, that's unfathomable. Yeah. And, and, and so the fact that, you know, you're in your mid thirties, I'm in my early fifties and yeah, we, you start to look back a little more and uh, it's okay. But I, but I also know like my buddy who says, you know, F, fuck nostalgia uh, or fuck the big chill. And, uh, and I, I, I get that, but I think every, everybody's process of looking back is different. And, you know, do you attend the high school reunion? And of course, in your case, you want at least the ability to say I'm not attending in a reunion. Yep. Um, yep. And, and I, I get it. So yeah, it's a long, long rant, but everybody has a different, everybody has a different relationship with nostalgia. And this is a great example of one of those stories. Well, that, and also just uh, looking back on life. Like I, I think mm-hmm. wild strawberries is probably the best example of a Bergman film that I can think of to do what you said, where every five years, if you were to watch it, this is, this movie will change. Yep. And, and uh, dude, I, I feel like I could go on about this movie for a very long time <laughs> okay. because this is like, this is now my like favorite thing ever. So I, what I, I'm going to start here and we can talk about this. Sure. I, I have several notes here, but I love that Isaac starts off and, and this is Dr. Borg, uh, yeah. Isaac Borg. Isaac starts off as an asshole, okay? Now, yeah. <laughs> I, I'll come back to that in a second because we don't see that, really. But you you very quickly realize people think he's an asshole. Okay? And, and, that's a tough, and that's a tough sell at the multiplex. Yeah. You're like, you know, there is, there is a term that has been said in my house and others like, why do I want to spend time with these people? Yeah. And it's as especially in a play or where you're stuck in a building, you're watching it. But, yeah, you're like if you're a bag right out of the gate. I mean, that's a tough sell. So the turnaround has got to work. Yeah. Well, I mean, Isaac starts off as an asshole. Marianne, his daughter in law, as I mentioned, you know, uh, tells him the story in the car. She confronts him, basically, because he asks and um, her like, you know, 
she was basically confronting him about his response to her reaching out to him and saying, hey, me and your son are having relationship problems. And he basically just tells her to fuck off. In other words, like, I, that's your problem. It's not mine. But we don't see this, Matthew. We don't see this part. We hear this in retrospect. So what I love is Isaac seems like some sweet old man, right? And 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 Victor Victor uh, Herstrom was like 78, I think, or something uh, in this film, uh, late 70s at the least. And, uh, you know, he, uh, and this was his last film, unfortunately. What, what, film. A, yeah. what a great what guy. What a way to go out, right? Incredible. You think about, you, if you think about the great cinematic codas, and I mentioned Henry Fonda got on Golden Pond, Spencer Tracy in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, uh, uh, Clark Gable in The Misfits. This is, this is up there. This is a guy whose film credits go back to 1912. Dude. And Bergman, and Bergman was one of those guys he, I mean, it helped that he had really, really talented core of players, but he also had great, he also looked for great faces. And this dude's life is all over his face. Yeah. And, and dude, I, I got to say, too, with, with that, Bergman was a huge fan of these silent films, like you said. And he was yeah. always, he was a traditionalist to the end in terms of he always remembered where Swedish cinema came from and he always incorporated. Uh, Always. The, like that golden era that they call from like 1912, 13 to about 19, early 20s in Sweden, Swedish films. He looks so fondly. So you see that a lot in this. You get a lot of those close ups that are made for like the passion of Joan of Arc, right? Like these like yes. brilliant, <laughs> these brilliant close ups um, that you would see in a silent film and you get them in these films. And anyway, so, dude, I love that Isaac seems so sweet. And then, you know, we learn about him through stories and we learn he's a complete asshole, but you don't ever see it. He's all I mean, he, nope. he has a few generational things like he sees he sees Marianne start smoking in the car and he's like, oh, I hate when women smoke. And it seems like the very old crotchety like this is my generation thing, but he never comes off like a complete heel. You know what no, I mean? And I think I think American film, you would, or not just American film, I think lesser filmmakers, no matter what nationality, you would have flashbacks. You would have flashbacks to show what a bag he is. And now and you can kind of figure it out. We all have those. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost a Rashomon. Your, you know, this person's yeah. vision of you is different than this person's from your relatives to who lives in your house who you work with, who you go to school with. Everybody has a different biography of you based on their own encounters. Absolutely, yeah. And 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 we get that here, even with new people who talk about yeah. it, like the trio, the, the Jules and Jim. Jules I'll and use Jim, your, as I like to call it. Yeah, yeah, I'll use your language here. The Jules and Jim, like, they learn more about him just through being on the road with him. And so you're getting their perspective of him, both when they first met him and thinking he was this larger-than-life character, and then they realize he's like a super legit dude being honored and... You know, and then he's just like a friend. He's just like Uncle Isaac. You know what I mean? He's just this guy. And so, uh, I, but what I love is that the the character is built, and all the facets that come with that character are built through these stories, through these flashbacks, through these dreams, which everything has meaning in the film. And so you start to see these things unfold, and it builds this three dimensional character that is so expertly performed by Victor Herster. I think his face, like you said. The face tells it's his whole life right there, right? Like, you know, he is certainly a grizzled actor. And this dude plays this part like the best actor you've ever seen. I think he embodies Isaac perfectly and tells this story wonderfully. Let's start there. What do you think of Isaac or Victor well, Herstrom? 
and I think I think there's you you put it very very well of he he you know ninety and many actors said ninety percent of acting is reacting. Yes. Um, he Victor doesn't have to act the stories that are told about his character. He just has to be. You have to you have to develop in your head how you feel about this person and this character, and all he's got to do is be stable, steady. Um, it's it's an underplayed performance. Yeah, he does not have to act up when somebody brings this up or somebody. But even I mean, even the, you know the smoking the smoking complaint. That's what old people do. That's yeah. what young people do. But uh, but we have all of this history about this character, and he is just holding it close to his vest keeping it real, keeping it rooted, does not have to perform. We, we, we watch his life through his face. Absolutely. And so, you know, he lets the Bergman and Victor let the audience do a, and, and really the other actors, they tell the stories and we do the heavy lifting. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I love, like, I love you talked about the acting is reacting, which I love that phrase ever since I heard it, I've used it. Cause it really is my favorite performances is really largely that is how people respond to the other actors. And whenever Agda, the, uh, the housekeeper that he keeps around when they're bickering at the beginning, most of that performance is not being, he's mostly just asking questions like, wait, you think I'm rude or what, you know, and she just is like going off on him and it's all just his reactions. You know what I mean? Yep. Uh, but also going back to my thing about he's an asshole, but we never see it. Even when people bring up these things, it's all in his face. You're just seeing him kind yeah. of tackle these things introspectively. He's never rude to them saying like, how dare you call me a jerk or how dare mm -hmm. you say you don't like me or whatever. He's always just like, oh, I'm sorry that you don't like me. You know, like that sucks. You know, He's always just so sweet and reserved. And I just love it. Yep. I've, I've learned over time where somebody will tell a story about me. I'm pointing back. And, uh, you know, I, I've learned I've reached a stage in my life where you just kind of shrug and go, yeah, yeah, I get it. That's that, that's me. Yep. Unfortunately, so, I'm not there yet. <laughs> you'll, you'll get there. You'll get there. And boy, this is, by the way, this is what you have to look forward to. Just don't eat and drink as much as I. But this is, you know, this is what you have to look forward to. And eventually, and, and that's why there's that thing of eventually you reach an age where you don't care. And that's where, and then we get the freewheeling, filterless old people characters that are on American movies and TV. But, you know, it's kind of the perks of being here long enough of who have I got to impress? Who do I have to prove to anybody? So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, Another thing about this movie, Wild Strawberries, is is Isaac uh, has a late wife, Sarah. And uh, Sarah is played by B.B. Anderson in these flashbacks. But B.B. Anderson is also one of the uh, Jules and Jim. It would, it would be the, uh, what's her name? Uh, um, uh, Dean Seberg. No, that's not her, is it? It's... Um, Oh, sorry. I got to check. Sorry. We're, welcome to the new wave, French new wave portion of Ingmar Bergman's. Oh, uh, uh, Jean Moreau. Oh, Jean Moreau. Oh, okay. yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. sorry. No, no, no. Sorry, I got man. obsessive and I had to pause. Everyone, you know, we're, we're, we're on by, track. By the way, you, you were mentioning Melinda, Melinda. Larry Pine was the guy with uh, <laughs> yeah. long shots. So yeah. But no, there's, yeah, first off, B.B. Anderson. Yes, uh, Roy Orbison Growl. You heard that. Um, great that she gets dual roles because that's how victor sees her yes and that's a that's a nice that's a nice touch and yeah guess what eventually after a while older older straight guys well just older guys like to look at younger prettier things and and it's 
it, it's we're not succubus. We just like to hang out and look at pretty things. So, and that that's a love. I mean, the the, the flirtatious banter between Victor and her. Um, I've done it. I will continue to do it. I hope I do it. When, I hope I'm still able to do it when I'm Victor's age. Um, but I I totally get that. It's there's you know I think as a kid as, as a college kid there's there might be a little bit of ew factor because he's you know, he's talking with this young girl and there you, there may or may not be some thoughts in his head. But now, I'm, now that I'm closer to Victor's age, I'm like, yeah, I, I wish I wish there was a, a B.B. Anderson hanging out with me, even just for a little bit. <laughs> See, that's so interesting. And maybe I just missed it, but I never thought of that direction. I always thought of her as this point of nostalgia because she reminds him so much of Sarah and which which could be part of where that like familiarity comes from when they talk yeah. because uh, of his past, but it's 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 less about uh, this pretty young. Again, not saying you're wrong, but my interpretation well, no, I, is. But I, but I think even if you, even if you are a man of a certain age to say you remind me of somebody I chased, and it's yeah, he's he's not going to try to chase her, and it could be from her end going, well, that's cute, or oh, that's okay, fine, but you know, and and but I'm or you could just I'm not her, just to be yeah. absolutely clear and blunt on that of I'm not her. So. Yeah, and and you know, I like not only does like Isaac have this like interesting relationship with her, but also Marianne, the 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 other actress, the uh, daughter-in-law, which I yeah. love their dude, their whole journey through the film because obviously it it evolves, you know, it's so great. But also, I I think of you know Isaac being an asshole. We meet his mother at one point. She's a complete jerk, um, and. <laughs> Yeah, and she's like ninety. Which in real life, that actress was actually younger than <laughs> Victor. Well, it's Cary Grant's mother in North by Northwest. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And and so, uh, but but you know, we got that. Isaac is the only remaining sibling of ten children. So he's watched nine of his Man. family members die. Okay. Uh, he did something kind, I guess, to the gas station attendant played by Max von Sydow. Of course, really. Uh, he's a legend. Way to come off the bench, Max. You you went from playing chess with well, and, I, and, and like I said, Bergman had a great core of players in movies, in TV, on stage, and so and you learn as a troupe, as a company, you're the lead in one production, and they're like, hey, can you can you come off the bench and just do a scene, and you do it. So yeah, absolutely, I mean, we saw that with back. Orson Welles, and of course, Scorsese had a troop for a while, and yep. you have like yep. these people. Coen Brothers have a bunch of people You're that they bring in. You, you know how they work; they know how you work. It's about the interesting role. It's about working with the people. It's not always star power or getting your name above the title. So, but yeah, it, it was just like, oh, Max, hey, there's Max Mancino. Good, to, good to see you. And it is such a small role. Yeah, but but you know, clearly he did something nice for this this couple at the gas yeah. station because they give him free gas. And then you know, and but then at the same time, you know, Marianne describes him as like terribly earlier. So we get all of these things, and we we like we don't know. They don't talk about what it was like when he lost his sibling. Like you don't, but you you pick up these things because they bring them up at certain points, and it feels all on purpose, like very intentional to have all of this information there because you can start to really put uh, Isaac together. And I'll get to the dreams in a moment because that's a very big part. Of, that's like a very uh, inciting incident, basically, of the of the movie. But, um, but I, I think also if you tell somebody, I mean, it's one thing for one sibling to die, but to say 
nine. Nine. And 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 you know, having having one sibling is a different dynamic than having nine. And and it's and it's not just necessarily just a cultural thing. I mean, you you can we talk about the the stereotypes of the Scandinavian and Swedish, or it's you know internal. And I I brought up inner turmoil, and you know, suicide rate is huge. But you know, losing nine brothers and sisters there's not a lot of people that can relate to that yes you can lose one or two or depending on your household but nine yeah and you're still and mom's still there yeah he's you know it's it's fun when i hear somebody younger than me not you of course when they say you're old you know they're feeling old and i always go well if you're old i'm ancient (laughs) you know and if victor's old victor's mom's re mom's playing chess with death on yeah. the beach. So. Yeah, absolutely. You, you, yeah, it, it sucks when you lose nine siblings and you still have an asshole of a mother alive. She's the <laughs> worst. She is the worst, yes. Matthew. She's the worst. <laughs> I hate her so much. But you're not supposed to like her. Of course, she's like a plot device to help develop. It, yeah, like it's, it's kind of low hanging fruit in that case. So, man, but and, and his son sucks. He's surrounded by sucky people, except for Agda, who just gives him a hard time all the time. He doesn't understand why, but she has every right because he's an asshole unintentionally. And that's what I love is I don't think he intentionally does anything asshole. This is just a product of his experience. This is just a product of his his life. Of his assholeness. Yeah. Yeah. It's a product of his asshole. Um, And, you know, I just I love that we see him develop. And as these things are brought to his attention and as he relives these moments and again, the dreams, which we'll go into in a moment. Yeah. You know, uh, he starts to realize like, wow, you know, I'm at the end of my life. I recognize this and Mm -hmm. I'm ready to actually realize not only who I am, but I'm ready to have some closure so that when I go, I have no regrets. And I agree with your answer when I asked you that question earlier. I believe both are true. And um, if if any film of of Bergman's deals with existential fears, sexual anxieties, and demonic visitation, this one fits into the trio, okay? Because yeah. because these dreams are like demonic uh, visitations, you know, like they're 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 nightmares. But what's interesting, though, real quick, before I I'll pass it off to you in a second. You know, um, what's interesting is the dream sequences are so bizarre and they're surprisingly effective as dreams, I think. And, and like, not only because they feel like silent movies, you know, like uh, the first one, at least the first one is like uh, this weird, bizarre, silent film. Uh, and I, I would just watch that movie. Uh, but like, also they don't make sense. Like they're, they're, it's like the opening of eight and a half. You know, or, or, or Stardust Memories. You know what I mean? Like, it's not that it doesn't make sense, but it's a dream. He's floating. Yeah. yeah you there's start- all this weird stuff, but that's like dreamlike because no one's questioning this stuff either. It just is. No. And that's how our dreams no. are. Like, why am I walking around with my underwear and I'm fine? And I'm, you know, I'm at the horse races. I don't like horses. You know, and it's is just that like. Sharon Stone blowing a kiss at me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. You got it. Yeah. yeah you're, you're, go ahead. There, there is that aspect of you dream something you and it's funny because when i have these dreams if they're very very vivid and i will roll over to my my lovely wife and say okay dream analyst this happened this happened and she's pretty good at, at hitting well it's probably because of this or it's probably because of that but um when we think about our mortality or our immortality i think quite often the first unless you have a person of faith, unless you have a priest or a pastor that tells you, but more likely it's your doctor. Like if your doctor says 
you got to change this or you have this much time to live or you have that. So as far as gearing us, so the fact that that Victor is having dreams that's saying, hey, you better you better change your shit um, as opposed to an official person or some other person of some authority saying, you know, maybe you should think about changing something. Um, I, I also think of the line, we go back to Woody Allen in play it again, Sam, when his wife leaves him and says, my lawyer will call your lawyer. And he goes, I don't have a lawyer. Tell him to call my doctor. Um, <laughs> so, so the fact that he's thinking about this already, and this is, this is his own realization as opposed to being prodded by a doctor or a priest or a lawyer or a, a, a loved one or what have you, you know, the, the sibling thing dying. Yes. Mom being, you know, uh, getting in the tangles with the Grim Reaper also probably helped. Maybe getting the award. The fact that he's getting this award after so many years. An at his honorary office. award for 50 years of service. Imagine and, how that would make you think. How were those? What? No, I just said, yeah. I said, think about what that would be like at that age. Because we have to also recognize this real quick. Uh, Victor Herstrom yeah. himself is in the position that Isaac is in. He's sick. Yep. He was sick during the filming of this. He's he's not fully healthy. He has to be thinking of his own mortality. He has to have some existential dread to some extent, just being a human being who's not fully healthy at the age of, you know, 78. Again, wh whatever age you I think he was 78, but I think he yeah, I think he died in like 1960, but I mean, but and we as we mentioned earlier, it's like what a uh, Spencer Tracy I think died 2 weeks after filming um, guess who's coming to dinner? The Misfits was Marilyn's last film, Clark Gable's last film, Mont Montgomery Clift. He would eventually soon go, but I mean, that, those are some really hard cinema codas. And yeah, you're right with uh, with Victor of, um, you know, that's a long ass time in the business. Yeah, and uh, I just can't, this would be his final film. Yeah, I can't. I can't. I just see a lot of. When I was watching it, I kept thinking of him as a person. You know, he's been in the business since the, the teens, the 19-teens, you know what I mean? And silent yeah. film. So, you know, he's probably getting Swedish honorary awards as a guy who's been in the business for however long. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think of it, even though he plays a doctor, you know, in, in the film, it's like I, I can't imagine what it would be like playing essentially yourself, you know, in this thing. And I, I know we get that in a lot of movies, but this is... This is a, a different ball game to me, you know. Yeah, it, it reminds me of when when Peter O'Toole got the honorary Academy Award for his career, and he even said in his acceptance speech, "I this is nice, but I want to win it outright." And then the next year, he, even though he didn't win it, he got nominated for Venus. Yeah. So I mean, there, there's that thing of of yeah, it's and 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 there's also the fear of I think the gold watch. Thank you for your service go out the pasture yes. and that's that's ter that's terrifying for some and i i know there's people and you can see the, the the shelves behind me it's like for a lot of people their work is their life and you know how many people have we heard about who have retired and soon after died yeah i mean that's a statistical thing yeah yeah i mean that yeah. like you know when when people lose that thing i i i just because i'm a big nerd i think of wrestlers like wrestlers never retire. Oh God! The, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean. Like they always Vern come back. Ganya. Yeah, don't 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 share a hospital room with Vern Gagne. But yeah, the, the that's why we're happy when somebody like Dwayne 
and John to a certain degree. You know, if you can get out and your limbs are still, you're not, nobody's turning into Mickey Rourke and the wrestler. There's enough of them out there. I, yeah, but I'm totally with you. If you can get out while the getting's good and your, your brain and your limbs aren't pudding, uh, thank God, man, go for it. Yeah. But you know, yeah, I, I just, I, these dream sequences, especially the second one, which I forgot entirely. I thought the one yeah. dream sequence was the opening, which again is the one that's like a silent film and it's, it's really great. And you have the clocks with no hands and the weird squish faced balloon guy who uh, cracks his head open and literally just bleeds like, which was so shocking to me when I first saw it. Cause we're talking about yeah. a 1957 Swedish drama and it's like this horrifying, just blood gushing out of these clothes. Um, and then you see the 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 uh, the casket fall out of this this carriage that's being dragged, and it's him. And uh, you know, and he's he's now challenged. I mean, this is going back to the existential fears that I brought up before. And uh, but man, the second one though, after you've seen yeah. these flashbacks, and another thing by the way, they never use a younger version of him. It's always just oh. him. And I think yeah. that's a really important thing because we're seeing the now Isaac reflecting back on these things as he relives them in these flashbacks. And I think that's really important. Uh, but man, that second dream is really take that hammer. Take that hammer horror. Check that out. Or is is it you? Since you made the analogy, it's like it's like watching Ric Flair get off the top rope at age sixty. Yeah, dude. Like, dude. Ouch. <sighs> dude. R- real quick, another wrestling aside. Yeah. Sting yes. uh, was uh, actually had an in person yeah. match. It was really great, by the way. But he got suplexed on the stage. He's sixty two. That would hurt. Do the- he doesn't do the stinger splash anymore. Yeah, he does. Then, yeah, there's no. He does the stinger splash. He won't did take. It, did he? Okay, all right. Yeah, no. He he looks. Sorry. He looks Sorry. great. No, 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 no. He he looks great. We we should all look that good if we're battered in our sixties. <laughs> but that's a, a different type of battering. Yeah. Anyways, we're talking about wild anyway, strawberries. I, I, any chance I get of wrestling, I'll talk. Where about Where else it, can you? Where else but medium cool can you? Well, I would show. <laughs> you mix professional wrestling with Ingmar Bergman. Take that. There podcast. you go. That's that's my that's that's the new uh, elevator pitch for my wrestling uh, promotion. Is uh, there you go? You know Bergman and wrestling. Anyways, uh, th- this dream sequence I think is is. Th- th- I don't think there's anything particularly scary, just like just happening. But I find it so haunting. Like whenever he goes yeah. to examine. Uh, the woman and she just like looks at him. He thinks she's dead, and he, she looks at him and starts laughing. And he can't read these words; they make no sense to him. And when he looks into the the uh, uh, magnifying glass or whatever, and all he sees is his own eyes looking back at him. And it's just like this weird, like he's like I he can't even remember what like the code as a doctor is. You know what I mean? It's like I, I can't remember. And it's like this idea of losing yourself and and you know like like. Uh, everything he knows is is leaving. It's like fleeting, right? Yep. Dude, I, th- incredible. And I think going back to what we were saying earlier with Smiles on a Summer Night, where we say it's a comedy, but it's not ha-ha, yuck-yuck, fall down, go boom. These are nightmares that are not going to make you scream in an audience, in a packed theater house, which we'll get to someday. But I think just looking at it, going, dude, that's fucked up. That sometimes can be more horrifying than, you know, a chainsaw through your chest yeah. as far as a scare or a fear back uh, factor. So, yeah, I think I think those those Bergman dreams are dude, that's fucked up. Yeah. Have you have you seen the Beastmaster from the 80s? 
I, I saw it in the theater. That's awesome. I saw it in the theater. Hey, hey, Patty you don't Roberts, hang your head. Mark Singer, John Amos. Yeah. Don't you hang your head. You do no, that with pride. I, I need to read. I need to revisit it, I guess. <laughs> Me too. Me too. It was it was at the two screener. And that's what you saw in the giant head thing with the. Oh, my I'll God. just say this. Yeah. The Beastmaster in my head is awesome, so I don't care. But they put they put <laughs> they put those glowing green things in their ear and the yep. guy goes crazy. That's that's what these nightmares are for me. Like that, like you watch that's him. another side podcast is, you know, in my head it's awesome. <laughs> it is. Bummersville, and, and in my head this is awesome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's probably awesome. I haven't seen it in like 20 years. But like <laughs> like you know, his these nightmares Isaac experiences are like those weird green worm things that go in the ear yep. because it's like it just it like stews in my brain like i'm watching him and i understand what he's struggling with and i'm like thinking about that i'm like fuck man that's a bummer like this is like i love this but it's like at the same time it's just like man like he is really struggling with this part of his life that he has not recognized for so long Mm -hmm. dude i can't put this movie over enough i actually like really love this and i've never had a bergman movie move me to tears and the end yeah. of this movie did. And and dude, because he, he can be very stiff. And by that I I, I, yeah. I by that I mean cold, stiff. I and, yeah. and and part of it is part of it is his style, part of it is his upbringing. And man, you know, if you look up Ingmar Bergman's upbringing, dealing with his family, dealing yeah. with religion, um what what we what film and theater and television have benefited because of what he went through. It's like, thank you, Ingmar. You did a lot of physical, emotional, heavy lifting to bring this onto the screen. And, and it's one of those where like, I'd love to do that. I'd love to make seven seal. I can't. And, <laughs> but he did. And thank God he did it for us. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a lot. By all means, just I mean, I don't usually encourage people just like go check out Wikipedia, but just go check out <laughs> Ingmar Bergman's Wikipedia. Just read the early life. It's not very long. That'll give you a few yeah. little tidbits of of the things. Um, but man, so the the last thing I want to bring up, and and I'm open sure. to any if you have anything else, are the close ups. Now now Bergman is known for these incredible close ups through his entire career. These very yep. meaningful, powerful close ups, and I love earlier you mentioned like. You know, he puts these things on screen and we do the heavy lifting. And that's such a great way to put it because because that's that's what Seven Seal does. That's what this film does is you are putting this movie together because all we're watching is an old guy on a road trip with like these like weird eccentric like group of misfits or whatever. And it's so much more than that. And I never got that when I watched it before over 10 years ago. You know what I mean? Right. And that's and that's where if if you're a budding film student in your teens and twenties and listening to this, first off, thank you. <laughs> you're a very <laughs> patient person. But um, yeah, and, and and on paper again, it's like old guy on road trip. And that may not seem exciting. It will eventually. You will wait, or the movie will wait for you. I might not be here. Austin will be here. He's a young man, younger <laughs> man. But I mean, uh, it, it'll be Victor's age. But but there but there is something about that, and so um, I, how you hit it at the right time. Um, I, I on a side tangent of um, I was fourteen when I really really got the Bruce Springsteen. 
born in the USA had come and blown up. And then uh, at that time, and still do, I'm, I'm like a sponge. I want to see what else is this guy made? I went back and got the catalog and hearing Born to Run, which I think is the greatest rock album, along with Exile on Main Street by the Stones. But uh, being 14 and hitting that sweet spot because it was about getting out. Get you know that there's where the, the title comes from. If you listen to that song, you know, growing up in Flint, Michigan, I wanted to get the hell out, and that song was that anthem. If I was younger or older, it might have been different, but it hit. And, and everybody has a film, an album, uh, a piece of art, or a play that hits you at the right time. And Wild Strawberries, it may take a while. Unless you have a quote-unquote old soul. If you can appreciate the plight of what somebody of a certain age is going to have to go through or is going through. Um, one, of the, one of the best plays I've ever directed, I got to direct it twice, was Horton Foote's The Trip to Bountiful. And it's, uh, you know, the film version, Geraldine Page won Best Actress for it. The great Horton Foote wrote it. And it's about a woman and, and a woman in her 70s who just wants to go back to her hometown in Bountiful. And it's not a sexy sell at the multiplex, but it's, you know, everybody should have, a, as I mentioned before, a clean third act. Victor wants this. Doc, you know, Dr. Dr. Borg wants this. And Mrs. Watts wants that. And I think, I think eventually, whether you think about it or not, everybody wants a clean third act. Sure. And yeah. and that's and that's what a lot of what wild strawberries is. Yeah, I, I, that's beautiful. Yeah, I, I'm on your bus, and I'll say this: uh, I, I think Isaac does get a beautiful third act where uh, we get a an incredible close up. It's a close up that Bergman has stated is his favorite close up that he ever. It's the best close up he's ever done. Can you explain why something happened right there that uh, hadn't any other time? How do you? What do you? <sighs> Tribute the close up to anything you said to him. The circumstances were very bad because mm. he was uh, in a, in a very bad mood because I had promised him uh, that uh, uh, he said yes I will make the picture with you but under on, on one condition I will be at home every day four thirty to have my whiskey. Four thirty. Yes. Whiskey. Yes. Yeah. And this day we, we we had to ask him to stay because because of the light over mm -hmm. over the landscape. And he was extremely uh, in, 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 a, in a bad mood and quarreled and was angry to me and said, you have promised and, and I can't get my whiskey. And I said, you can't get my whiskey here. But he said, no, it's not the same. I want to go home. I want to, to take off my clothes. And I want to sit in my morning coat and I want to have my whiskey. And then, so, and when we, we, we worked under, under, under pressure and, and uh, we were both of us a little bit angry and, and suddenly he said, no, uh, let's take this scene now. And, uh, and uh, we, we put up the camera, you know, and he, he was sitting in a corner. And then I, I said, Victor, please come now. And he said, yes, I come now. And he, he came out. It, it's it's out. It's just outside the studio. This is uh, the last scenes are, are, are made. And then, uh, and he said, um, "What do you want me to do now?" Very angry. I said, "You see your parents." Aha! Uh -huh, I see my parents. And then I said, 
I, I, I had already the feeling this will be a catastrophe. But we, we have now, we have to take it because I have urged him the whole day and I, I, I had lost the battle and I, I felt, very, felt very guilty. And suddenly I said, camera and, and go on. And suddenly we got this. Which, and that's saying a lot I if, was, you know, if you know Bergman films. I was just about to say that exact thing because <laughs> that's what, I mean, if you look up a still... You might see the persona kid touching the screen. You know, you might see a few others, but you're going to get the persona, one person looking one way. And you, but these are all close-ups too, but there are these other more haunting kind of isolating close-ups that he does, uh, especially the Max, uh, the Max von Sydow. Like you can just Google Max von Sydow Bergman movie, and I guarantee you're going to get some right. great close-ups that tell a whole story. It's the picture paints yep. a thousand words kind of a thing, right? And uh, <laughs> but But you really get some incredible close-ups here. I, I think this is really the peak for me at up to this point for Bergman is like, man, smiles of a summer night is great fun. I had a wonderful time. It's one yeah. I would love to watch again five years from now or so. You know what I mean? Like eventually I'd love yeah. to see it again and maybe even show it to someone. But this movie hit me like a ton of bricks. I did not expect it. Having seen it twice before, like you said, I, when I got into Bergman, this is one and the seven seal, the two I watched back to back. Um, well, not literally back to back, but I mean, like they were the first two I watched uh, yeah. around the same time, and then I watched it again in school, and then you know now I'm watching it here, like probably ten years later, and I I can't put this movie over enough. I, I this is like five out of five, an incredible experience for me, and I'm 36. I can't wait to be mid 50s like you, Matthew. And oh, great, well, thanks. <laughs> which, which means I'm which means I'm closer to Dr. Borg's age when that happens. No, if, if can you recall how the film went over in Dr. Gehring's class? Let me tell you about Wes Gehring's class, all right? <laughs> this is what's I annoying. love you, Wes. I love your class. And, and, and I, well, I also have Wes Gehring class stories. Wes Gehring is a dear, dear, sweet man. I adore him a great deal. He was very helpful in my academic career. But yes, tell, tell me about your class of this film is, genre. This is what every class was, and I took all of his classes. <laughs> okay. Every The first 50, because they were like almost four-hour classes, or once a week, these really long classes. Oh, wow. And okay. so we, had, we, we did the first 15 to 20 minutes, he would just say, so what have you guys watched? And he would literally, he wouldn't stop anyone. Yep. He would just let hands yep. go up and you just talk about yep. movies and he would talk about them with you or ask you questions. He's very good at engaging with you. And what's funny is I sat in the same place every time my first class. I think it was either genre. I think it was, no, no, no. It was uh, the one I'm thinking of was genres. It was not my first gearing class, but uh, it was okay. the first time that I met my friend Jake. He went to AFI, the American Film Institute, got his mm -hmm. grad degree afterwards. Now he's a screenwriter in LA. I love you, Jake. He's been on the podcast. Um, Hi, Jake. And uh, Jake and I didn't know each other, but we sat in the same spots right next to each other, just coincidentally. Every class I had in the screening room, I sat in that seat, and he coincidentally <laughs> sat there. And every time Wes Gehring would ask us, so who's, has anybody seen The Seventh Seal or whatever? Boom. We were the only yep. two hands that went up every time. And the only other person that had seen some of those is our friend and friend of the show Sam Watermeyer, who was in he was a freshman hey! he was a freshman when I was a like junior or senior or something yeah and so uh, but he was in a West Garing class and I remember him he was the third person that not as many as we had but he was like raising you know for where he was yeah. I was very proud of him <laughs> my uh, my my film genre class there was four of us we were called the Magic Square it was two and two we were in one corner and yeah we shot our hands up all the time. 
We were the most verbal. Also, it would also help that that time was the four of us road trip to Indy because this is 1992. They had just put out the re- restoration of Blade Runner. Oh, yeah. Without without the voiceover and, and the and the more ambiguous ending. And man, that was that's one of my all time favorite movie road trips. So, it's yeah, I. And and yeah, so and so yeah, it, it we kind of felt like Tracy Flick times four, as far as the four of us throwing our hands up and and is part of it was the the, the other students didn't have as maybe probably weren't as 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 enthusiastic as us, or were just on the opposite end of the spectrum when it came to the class. Here's what bothered me the most is that okay. You had a lot of film and media studies people, but there were only there were only maybe out of twenty or thirty people, there were only five or six of us. Everyone else was a production student taking it as an elective. So you have film production <sighs> people, yes. film production people who don't even know who Orson Welles is. Okay, they watch The Walking Dead and think The Cabin in the Woods was the greatest film ever made. And I'm not talking <laughs> shit about the movie. I'm just saying it's not. Okay, no, I get it. I get it. <laughs> And so it's Our, like everything Everything is like a David Fincher, like fluorescent light flicker or Boondock Saints. You know, it's just this shit. And so then he wants to show, he shows it. The, the one old movie that got went over every time is when he would show a Chaplin movie. Everyone yes. laughed and he was timeless. Great. He's fantastic. Yep. I love silent comedy. And so um, I might go on a caveat before we get off here on silent That's comedy fine. with That's you. Fine. But, but anyways, because right. we'll wrap up here in a minute, but. Uh, but in the West Garing classes, he would show these movies and he showed Wild Strawberries for one class. And I don't remember what this, I think it was in film theory. I think we were talking about formalism okay. or so, something like that. And anyways, he shows this movie and all of the film people were like, interesting. You know, J- Jake and I were just like, yeah, this fucking rules. And then all the production people were like trying to kick themselves to stay awake, like so bored. And bless Gehring's heart, he would try to show movies like he wouldn't show the big banger that everyone should have already seen, like Seven Seal or something. He would try to show the movie they might enjoy more. But man, he would like sometimes tell me that people thought certain movies, whatever, like insert whatever movie here uh, was boring. And I'm like, how? You're in a film class. Just watch the fucking thing. It's so upsetting. My, my, we, um, my, go ahead. Go, no, what uh, I would say, the, the, the big debate I always remember, and it was like the first week we watched for the war film for film genre, and it was discuss the genre on Monday, watch the example on Wednesday, and then post discussion on, discussion on Friday. And we watched Patton. Hmm. And half the class thought he was a patriot, and the other half thought he was a sadist. And going back to what you were saying about Wes trying not to do the obvious choices, and we, we, I, I love you, Wes. We, we gave him gentle flack for this, but we did sci-fi and horror, I think, back-to-back. And he picked, for science fiction, he picked uh, Time After Time. And for horror, he picked Fright Night. Both interesting choices. Both movies with a disco scene. <laughs> so we kind of said to him like okay no more no more disco after this even if you show saturday night fever find another one but uh but yeah and, and then i remember when we came in and just kind of passed out from enthusiasm over over blade runner uh but yeah there were there were those same students as you know it was, a, it was an elective and we kind of as the magic square we kind of looked over how dare you not be as excited about this as us you get to watch movies in a class 
put you know, I, and I think uh, to a certain degree, I, I wanted to do that with my my music appreciation class. I'm like, I'm not asking you to write five thousand words on Miles Davis. I just want you to listen to stuff, and then you give me stuff to listen to, and uh, and you know, expand your palate. Yeah, I mean, he would. Dude, we did Billy Wilder. This is the end of this caveat. And I'm like, okay. dude, he's gonna show, he's gonna show some like it hot, or he's gonna show the apartment, or he's gonna show whatever. And he shows the major and the minor. Okay, now not oh. a not not a bad film. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But that's not getting over with a contemporary crowd, in my opinion. <laughs> and it 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 flew about as well as you know uh, a ton of Heard bricks. Yeah, yeah. It was it it didn't go great. Uh, but I would always follow him to his office, and we would just like talk about movies. Yeah. And he would ask me yeah. questions, and I'm like, I don't think that went so well. <laughs> like, you know. Uh, but anyways, hey. my, my, my caveat real quick uh, for you yes, with sir. silent comedy. We're, 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 I think we're, we're mostly done, and I'm going to wrap up uh, the wild strawberries thing here in a moment because we've okay. already put it over enough. It's the greatest thing ever. Yeah. But silent comedy, just since we're talking about Gehring, I feel like this is a memorial. My, my memorial to Wes Gehring question. Do you prefer uh, Charlie Chaplin or Buster Keaton? Is this the end of Sophie's Choice? <laughs> Then I don't have to fucking answer that. Why can't you enjoy both? You can, you can, but it's it's guys, it's the cinematic guys, debate, both, right? You're both pretty. Yeah. No, we like Garing and I used to talk about this. Of course, he's he's very biased toward Chaplin, and and we, I am yes. more a fan of Chaplin as well. But I love them oh, both. I adore them or, absolutely uh, both. Or I could be the douchebag and go uh, Harold Boyd. <laughs> I actually thought you were going to be that guy just to like be a dick. No, fun, fun story. I, I got, I was on the air. I work at WFYI when I'm not doing this, of course, but, uh, and I do a blue show on Saturday nights and I was on the air. I, I, and I'm playing as particular and my phone rings and it's a friend of mine from college. And, and he says, and I, and it's like a five minute song. So I have enough time to pick up and hopefully have a short conversation. And, uh, and he goes, hey, man, I'm listening to the show. I got three of my buddies here. Can you settle an argument? I'm like, what? He goes, who's the greatest guitar player ever? And there, you know, three, four guys in their 40s are throwing out names at me. And so I hear the four choices. And then he, and I'm not a list guy. I mean, if, it, you know, if you had me do a Bergman list, that's fine. I do a top 10 at the end of the year. That's fine. But there's too many lists because I'm old and I'm tired. And so and he, he goes, who's, who's, he, so I get these four candidates and I'm like, you know, Jimi Hendrix, uh, Joe Satriani. I can't remember the others. But he goes, who's the greatest guitar player? And just to be that guy, I just had Robert Johnson. <laughs> and I could hear everybody on the phone go, oh, and like, because it wasn't for him, you wouldn't have any of this. Goodbye. Click. That's awesome. So, yeah, there's, but no, I, um, I think Ch obviously Chaplin's an obvious choice. You can never, ever, ever forget the storytelling and the physicality of, of, of Buster Keaton. You can't. I'll tell you this, listeners, and, real quick. I'll tell you this. Go to YouTube. Yeah. I'm sure it's on there. Watch Sherlock Jr. It's about 28 minutes or something. Yeah. That's the best 28 minutes you're ever going to spend. It is nonstop gags. And, but in like the biggest, best physical way that Chaplin never did stuff like he does right. in this because they had two very different styles. But yeah. Yeah. And, and on the flip side, I was able to take my daughter at the old uh, the old two screener art house on the south side by the University of Indianapolis. 
I was able to take Emma to see City Lights in a theater. And I, she didn't, I bawled like a baby. It's the greatest. It's, it, it's so yeah. there's the, the, the Keaton has all the great physical awe. Spectrum. And I think Chaplin hits the emotional notes. So it's, you know what? It's snails and oysters and Lawrence Olivier can have both. <laughs> yeah, it, they're both great. All right. That was a fun caveat. I love that. Also, we okay. should, we should, we should do a show on music sometime. That's, that's a, that is my second equal passion. I would love to talk to you about music. Um, but, I will say this to wrap up Wild Strawberries. If you're interested and have never seen Wild Strawberries, you can find it on Amazon Prime. It's also streaming on the Criterion channel right now and the other places I mentioned before. You can rent it on YouTube and uh, I believe Apple uh, TV Plus as well. Um, I I don't even know how to put this movie over more. I, I can't stress enough how, like... If anybody's listening and like you were talking about, if you if you are a, a budding cinephile and you're you're working on it, if you watch a Bergman film and you're not into it, please don't for the next 20 years say, ah, I saw that I wasn't into it. Please yeah. revisit. I'm telling you as someone who did that thing, okay? <laughs> like, please revisit uh, as we've both kind of been encouraging all of our listeners to do because I'm telling you, man, this movie hit me like a ton of bricks, and I hope it remains a five-star movie for the rest of my life because this was a wonderful experience that I honestly had no expectations for prior to revisiting it. Go ahead and send us off. Uh, what do you want to say? Well, and as as you know, to kind of carry on what you said. Think if it is a film you have seen, think about the last time you watched it and revisit it because you're older, you're different, hopefully, and uh, and see how it works with you this time. I don't even know how to finish it off any better. Thank you so much for hanging out with us for this episode, Matthew. And um, yeah, tell them where they can listen to you again because you have a you. The show is also a podcast, film sociology. Tell them yes, about that. Uh, thank you, Austin. Yeah, film sociology, S O C E Y O L O G Y. Um, available at wfyi.org slash podcast. It's usually up Friday evenings, uh, depending on what time I get up. I get up, I'm get i on the air from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. on Fridays. So once I get it up, sometimes it's Friday night, sometimes it's first thing Saturday morning. But um, it, we, it, it's, I still haven't been to a movie theater for a film screening in since the pandemic. I'm hoping to get there very, very soon. So there's a lot of going reading what people on Facebook and Twitter have watched plus the videos have been sent to me I'm currently going through um oh the guy who created uh Monster a Go-Go Bill Rabane the films of Bill Rabane Django the Sergio Carbucci movie you oh, know so yeah. to go from Bergman to Fellini to Django that's uh, you know it's and and also laughing because I'm I, I'm doing a whole diatribe about movie stars that appeared on laughing um, again, the struggle is real. So, um, you know, I, I, I do as much as I can as far as online new films. And uh, I, I recently, uh, a, a colleague of mine from WFYI has retired. So I replayed the entire one hour discussion we did on the film, The Hollywood Nights. 
because these are your pledge dollars at work. We go from Ingmar Bergman to horny teenager movies from the Hollywood Nights. That's what you get here at Film Sociology. <laughs> that's the best. You can also find it on uh, Apple Podcasts because that's where I get those updates. I don't know yes. if they're always up to date, but you can. Uh, yeah, I think they're on Spotify. I'm an yeah. old person because I listen. I, my, you know, my office. If you can see, I look like Michael Caine and Children of Men. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have my physical copies. I just want to be, I want to be, um, I want to be Burgess Meredith without breaking my glasses or going deaf in the twilight zone. So I'm good. Yeah. That's, that's so awesome. Thank you so much for being with us, Matthew. Thanks. Awesome. All right, that about wraps up our episode today. This is episode 38, and we're so excited to have been with you for that long so far, and I'm so happy that Matthew Sosi could meet with me and talk about more Bergman. Again, this is the 75th year since Bergman's first film, to the year. Uh, first film was 1946 with Crisis, which I covered in a previous episode, and it is 2021. 75 years, that's so crazy. We're still celebrating his movies today. And uh, I'm just really happy that Criterion Collection put out this kick-ass box set that has like 40 of his movies or something in it. It's crazy. So yeah, today we talked about Smiles of a Summer Night and Wild Strawberries. Next week, I'm going to be inviting Matthew back. And uh, we're going to be talking about The Virgin Spring and Through the Glass Darkly. I'll also have an opening segment where I hope to talk about The Summer of Soul, which is a documentary coming out on Hulu. Uh, it should be a fun time, provided I'm able to, you know, see it. Uh, I should have that for you as well. Following that, uh, I'm going to be talking with my buddy Jake Bottelieri, um on the July 13th. It'll be episode 40, and we're going to be celebrating Wong Kar Wai's birthday by watching, uh, by talking about rather, uh, Chungking Express and Fallen Angels, both of them. There is a tie between them, like a, uh, you can tie them together because they were originally meant to be the same movie. So we're gonna kind of talk about both of them and uh, just double feature it. It'd be a great time. And I'll have an opening segment for that. And then we'll be welcoming Joe back finally on July 30, or 20th rather, for episode 41, where I plan to have Joe and a special guest come in to celebrate uh, Paul Verhoeven's birthday, where we're going to be doing a listener's choice uh, starting, I believe, next week, actually. I'll have a poll up for about a week, and we're going to be uh, having a poll for Paul Verhoeven movies where you can choose between RoboCop, Total Recall, and Starship Troopers to see what Joe and our special guest and I will be talking about. And prior to that, I'm going to be, uh, for the kind of intro segment, I'm going to be talking about a Paul Schrader movie because we talked about First Reformed, you know, uh, last month sometime, I think, uh, with Jake Bottelieri. Uh But, uh, you know, it's going to be Paul Schrader's birthday and I'm going to be watching a movie and I haven't decided whether I'm going to watch Hardcore, if I'm going to watch Mishima, Life in Four Chapters. I've never seen Mishima before, so I'm probably going to do that. But hey, you know what's my show? I can choose whatever I want. So I hope you enjoy that. That's a little preview for what we have coming up. And uh, again, lots of Bergman, lots of fun movies. Uh, the opening segments, uh, you know, we're starting to get to a point where I can start watching a lot of the newer stuff and uh, talking about that. So I hope you guys enjoy it. I hope you guys stick with us because, hey, we love you. So, hey, good night. Good luck. Take it easy. <laughs> <laughs>